0: February is Black History Month, and we have a presentation from Kevin, Tyrese, and Michelle.
1: Hold up! It's that time of the year again. It's our month to shine. Everybody lend your ear again. They really don't teach you stuff in school, it's a mystery. Black history, our forefathers paved the way. Here's 28 reasons to hug a black guy today. Number one, we deserve a chance. Two through 28, slavery. <laughs> ain't trying to brawl you know we ain't mad at all of y'all we love michael mcdonald and daryl put your hands up if you're down with the cause keep them up if your ancestors owned us number three slavery number four slavery number five slavery number six slavery number seven slavery 22 jazz i'm kidding slavery
2: <clears throat> i hear what you're saying and that's real hip but allow me to play devil's advocate but
0: um, sit down i'm sorry
3: what's it all about
4: my iconic jerk. I'll show you the life
5: of the mind!
6: My Iconic Jerk. The life of the mind. That's my thing. I used to think the human brain was the most fascinating part of
7: the body. Then I realized, well, look what's telling me that.
6: There's an exchange in one of the show's interviews I want to preview.
8: One can speak about these things abstractly, but in the day-to-day world, it's life and death consequences for people.
6: I didn't catch it in the moment, but I think Dr. Tatum was a little irritated with me there. And if she was, I don't blame her. It's something for white people to remember. Our lives are not greatly affected by the outcome of these conversations. It's easy to talk abstractions when you're not wounded or anxious or angry or mourning. Here's Ta-Nehisi Coates on the subject.
1: All our phrasing, race relations, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience. That it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth you must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence upon the body.
6: Maybe it's obscene for me to be digging into nuance when Black Lives Matter is seen by so many as a controversial controversial statement. statement.
1: Black lives matter. Not matters more than you. Just matters. Matters. Just matters. That's where we're starting the
9: negotiations.
6: But I don't think many of you need me to explain why black lives matter and all lives matter don't contradict. If you do, write me and I'll hook you up. So I'm going to do what I do. I'll try to focus on things that matter, and hope a record of my stumbling remedial education will be of some use to somebody. As usual, I'm going to include voices more knowledgeable than mine, and I encourage you to seek out more from them and others. I'm Daniel Kaufman, welcome to the Myoclonic Jerk Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about race, an awful fantasy that was pretended for so long it changed the real world. I'm going to be speaking with psychologist Paul Bloom, comedian Dwayne Kennedy, educator Beverly Daniel Tatum, World War II veteran Gene Smith, diversity trainer Jane Elliott, anthropologist Robert Sussman, and a quick visit from my old man. Let's go.
10: This is Chris Smith with The Naked Scientists. We're joined now by Professor Nina Jablonski. She's an anthropologist at Penn State University, Nina, why do we have different skin colours?
11: People close to the equator tend to have a lot of melanin and people farther away from the equator have considerably less.
10: What do we know about how those two systems of people evolved?
11: The earliest members of our species evolved in equatorial Africa, and high levels of melanin protected them from the harmful effects of ultraviolet radiation in the sun, which is present at great concentrations close to the equator. What actually is the pigment protecting us from? We've all heard of this
10: association between sun exposure and skin cancer, but is that the whole story?
11: Not at all. Melanin pigment is tremendously good at absorbing and scattering long-wavelength ultraviolet A radiation that destroys folate, the B vitamin that is critical for the production of DNA. And DNA is essential for new cells, and that is essential to survival. So melanin protects against destruction of your cell division mechanism. But as
10: I move away from Africa and go to climes like Britain, where we have much less sun exposure, what's the point of going white? Why don't I just stay dark? Your
11: skin not only protects you from a lot of stuff, but it's a vitamin factory. It makes vitamin D. As you get farther away from the equator, up where you're living, you get about two months during the year when you have ultraviolet B radiation in the atmosphere that can cause vitamin D production you need to lose as much pigment as possible to take advantage of that very rare UVB. And that's why you and your ancestors underwent loss of pigmentation and look the way you do. What about the
10: Afro-Caribbean hair? What is the evolutionary benefit
11: of very dense curly hair like that? The very external surface of the hair becomes very hot when you're under the sun. But this curly, frizzy hair keeps a lot of loft in it, even when it's moist. So that leaves a cooler barrier layer of air that allows the scalp to lose heat by radiant heat loss as well as by sweating and thereby keeps our heads cool.
6: So how did it happen? How did a meaningless superficial difference come to mean so much? There's an idea out there that we're all born angels, and bigotry is something that's just pumped into us by bad parents.
2: You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to Be carefully taught.
10: This is just the kind of ugliness I was running away from.
6: I think we like this idea because it's depressing to think that something so cruel and stupid could be, in any sense, natural.
12: The answer is somewhat complicated.
6: Paul Bloom is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University. He's the author of many books, including Just Babies. The Origins of Good and Evil.
12: I don't actually think we come to the world with specifically racist biases. To some extent, the notion of race is discovered by children as they develop. But we do come in as highly biased parochial creatures with a strong tendency to distinguish us from them. And I think this serves as the foundation for a lot of racial biases that you find later on in life.
6: Can you tell me about some of the studies that showed you this?
12: What you find is that babies, from the very get-go, favor their own in-group. Babies start off very cold-blooded towards strangers. This is the very first division that shows up in human morality between my family, those people I'm familiar with, versus everybody else. And then pretty quickly, you see signs for other distinctions between males and females, between people their age and adults. There's some classic studies showing that if a baby's brought up with white people, the baby prefers to look at white faces and black faces.
6: Regardless of the race, the baby.
12: The baby might not even know his or her race. I'm not sure when they come to realize it. We know it's more than a bias to favor yourself because there's been studies done with Ethiopian babies raised in Israel with caretakers of all different races. And these babies don't show any preference. So I think what you're seeing here is a familiarity bias.
6: Which often tends to be a same-as-me race, but it's not necessarily.
12: Exactly. And you can actually see how a familiarity bias could be different from same-as-me when you look at babies' preferences for gender. Most babies prefer females over males. And it used to be thought that that's an innate bias towards female caretakers. But it turns out that when you look at the babies who are raised by men, they show a male bias.
6: Can you explain what the contact hypothesis is?
12: The idea is that contact with other individuals of a different race or different ethnicity, different social class, will lead to diminishing of prejudice and an expansion of trust. The right circumstances is important. I mean, if my boss is Chinese and I hate my boss, that won't do it. Right. If I'm a white kid constantly clashing with black kids, that contact isn't going to make me like them anymore. But if you meet other people as equals, united with a common project, it tends to make you more accepting towards them. The two best examples of this in the real world are sports teams and the military, which more than a lot of other institutions tend to be racially integrated.
6: It's interesting in both those examples, you're creating a different other, like we still need an other to band against.
12: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure if it's true, but a lot of people believe that the best way to bring people together is to have a common enemy. Ronald Reagan pointed out that if the aliens were in our discussions with General Secretary
13: Gorbachev, I couldn't help but say, just think how easy his task and mine might be if suddenly there was a threat to this world from another planet, we'd forget all the little local differences that we have, and we would find out once and for all that we really are all human beings here on this Earth together.
6: Yeah. Does your research suggest approaches for improving race relations that don't require us to create a third party enemy?
12: People have struggled over how to improve race relations, and my work has nothing specific to offer. I think we should be humble as to how little we know about these things. You take kids in racially integrated schools where everybody gets along, mm-hmm. and then you find the kids that don't become racist because skin color is actually not that interesting a distinction, and nobody's making a fuss about it. But once you get into the real world, there's a social reality to race and ethnicity that you'd have to be blind to miss, and kids don't miss it.
6: Right. There's no actual thing but the social construct, and that becomes a thing.
12: If people took astrology seriously and took seriously, well, I'm a Capricorn, I do things this way, and I'm a Pisces, and I do things this way, the fact that people took it seriously would make the categories real. And to a large extent, racial and ethnic categories are like that. The differences we see are the products of the cultures of different groups and also of how different groups are treated by others. And these have led to very real differences.
6: And in fact, you even talked about studies that show people care about divisions created literally by a coin toss or by different colored t-shirts. Does that lead to a chicken and egg question? I mean, how do they come to care about these divisions if it's only seeing other people caring about the divisions that makes it happen?
12: It's a good question, which really goes beyond the scope of my work as a psychologist. It's more of a question of history and anthropology and sociology. Mm -hmm. I think in the real world, there's typically a mix. Sometimes groups really are different in that they come from different places. And when they come to a nation, they've already distinguished themselves by their culture, what they wear and what foods they eat and how they speak. People notice them. And then there's cases where the differences can be imposed You see this in a school like Yale, where students are sorted randomly into different colleges. And it really is random. The colleges have no differences in the sorts of people they have in them. And yet, once a student finds him or herself in a college, you favor that college over other colleges, you develop a loyalty. Uh You can literally create groupings that are nothing.
6: We're animals. We have dumb instincts. Our hearts race when we speak in public. Because danger used to mean fight or flight, and we needed adrenaline. Now we get shaky when we need to be calm. We freeze when a car is coming at us, probably because in the jungle when danger was near, your best chance of surviving was to be perfectly still. On a street, it's the opposite of what we need. In the jungle, any other was possibly a threat. And people who were too trusting probably got eaten. So what persists is skittish and suspicious, is tribal. Here's a quick clip from the beauty episode that's on point. We exist in a physical world, but we experience it from the inside. All our love and anger and worries and wishes happen behind our faces, but our experience of everyone else is from outside. We often bounce off the surface of the other and never get in.
13: It's only with the heart that one can see clearly. What's essential is invisible to the eye.
6: But it's so hard to ignore what's right in front of you. The face is a medium. The part of us that has so little to do with us is the first thing anyone else sees. And here's another little piece with Richard Garriott. From the gaming episode, we all walk through the world only knowing our own perceptions. Mm-hmm. And each of us is the only one that we know is real. Yep. And I feel games fit into that because everyone around us is an image. And that's true in real life, too. We don't see behind the face of the person we see. And so
14: I agree with you. I think most of us, we acknowledge that the rest of the physical universe around us really is there. And that these other humans really are independent minds, just like we are. However, perceptively, all you know is your own.
6: There's a built-in challenge to camaraderie. We have instincts to be social, and we have instincts to be fearful, to reach out and to lash out, depending on whether someone seems like our tribe or not. We're used to our mirror face. We're used to a certain accent, a certain vocabulary, a certain manner. It's all surface stuff. Inside, everyone has a sameness. Here's Mike Farrell.
4: All any human being wants are three things, love and attention and respect.
1: Hey, I'd like to talk to you all about reparations. I don't want 40 acres and a mule, but a condo would be nice if y'all wanna help me out with that, you know.
15: Why would you want 40 acres and a mule? If you need reparations out of this, you ain't got no money.
2: How you gonna take a 40? You can't take care of 40 acres and a mule. You can't take care of you.
1: Now, now mules running
2: around. <laughs> you know, just all through the ghetto, just mules and shit. <laughs> Moose mules, you know what I mean? Hey, man, I want you to do something with your brother? Hey, that ain't my mule. I ate my mule. You barbecued
4: him. First day, I got him.
6: When I started doing comedy in Chicago, Dwayne Kennedy was already a revered upperclassman on the scene doing specials and appearing on Seinfeld and Letterman. If you've never heard his work, you should seek it out. He's one of the best we have in the U.S. He's currently a writer on the CNN show United Shades of America. Hey, Dwayne. Hey, bro. What's poppin'? When I heard you on Mark Marin show many years ago, right. I was kind of mad because I was like, Mark Marin, you should have had Dwayne on a long time ago because he's a great comedian. And then you just throw him on because you are doing a race show. But now I'm doing a race show?
15: Oh, brother. (laughs) I wasn't even supposed to be on the show. Kamal was scheduled to do the show, Uh and I was giving Kamal a ride around town. So I was just incidental.
6: Well, that's even worse then. Now I'm double offended.
15: So I'm on your show on purpose, but it's still about race, so I'm only half insulted.
6: (laughs) Well, wouldn't you be insulted if you heard I did a show about race and I didn't call you? No, Bob, at this point in my life, I'd be relieved.
15: I'd be like, oh, man, look at Dan just giving me a break on the race tip.
6: I mean, we used to talk about race all the time. Yeah. After shows, we would go and have burritos and solve all the world's problems.
15: Yeah, I've long since given up on that, Bob. <laughs> I'm still good with the burritos, though. Let's get the vegetarian tacos. Those things still hold their promise and are still as fulfilling as they ever were.
6: <laughs> vegetarian tacos? Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a little cause for optimism, I guess.
15: For sure, man. If you want to talk about race, we could talk about it, of course.
6: Well, good. I wish we would recorded. I don't know, maybe if I listened back, I wouldn't be as great as I remember. (laughs) We used to break down each other's bits and figure out whether they were offensive or not.
15: (laughs) You mean all of them?
6: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so it is weird me calling you up like, hey, you're black. Let's talk about it. I feel like that's part of white privilege is that I don't have to think of myself as having race most of the time. Like, every once in a while, somebody says you're a white guy. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm a white guy. But do you get forced into that consciousness probably more often? It
15: depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm dealing with other black folks, then not as much. Right. Even white folks, it depends on who they are. I mean, like you and I, we can talk a long time and not talk about race.
6: We got to a place where it was like, you're Dwayne, I'm Dan, and race maybe is not the first thing we're thinking about.
15: Right. But if it's white folks doing shows about race, then sometimes I get a call. <laughs> <laughs> They'll dust
6: me off. <laughs> but it's tricky, right? Because you don't want white people to say, oh, I don't see race. No, that's ridiculous. You don't want that either. No,
15: everybody sees race. It's not the matter of seeing it. It's a matter of how you feel and how you act once you see it. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say, I don't see color. And yet, <laughs> I mean, on both sides. I've heard black people who only date white people Uh and say, oh, I don't see race. I just see a man. Yeah, but the race you always happen to never see is white folks.
6: (laughs) It's weird. We're just born in this world where there's this history that people cared about something that's completely meaningless for so long, skin color, that it came to matter.
15: Certainly in regards of who's in power and how that manifests people's behavior towards one another then it absolutely matters. Certainly more significant than a lot of people want to believe.
6: I think there's an element of wishfulness. Like, we want to be in a world where it doesn't matter.
15: I think you're right. I think a lot of that is wishful thinking, and if I insist that it doesn't matter, then it won't matter. But I don't know if that can work.
6: Do you think in 100 years, is the world you want to see one where skin color is just like eye color or something, where it's just a thing, you might notice it, but who cares?
15: I'm cool with people being different. That's a great thing. Yeah. To me, that's not the issue. That's obfuscating the point. But how are those differences regarded? That's the issue.
6: Yeah, we have differences that matter, like what your taste is and what your talent is. And skin color is just like, oh, yeah, nothing important one way or the other. Isn't that where we should go?
15: Well, human nature, I don't know if that will ever evolve. People will always find something to distinguish themselves. Maybe if it wasn't skin color, eye color would become a determining factor in how people treated one another.
6: You don't feel like we're working on a progressive path? You think we're just always going to be fighting about
15: something? Mm, Man, I don't know, man. I want to say ideally, yes, we are evolving and violence will become as archaic as the plague. But I don't know if that's true, man. People are violent and nobody's exempt. Nobody's noble. White folks get the predominance of the blame for things, as in some cases they should, is the fact that they predominantly run institutions. Mm-hmm. But there's violence among non whites toward each other, towards other groups that aren't white. I mean, there's just people, man. Before Europeans came to Africa, there were intertribal conflicts. Um, just before the Europeans came to the New World, nations of indigenous fought with one another. Mm-hmm. So people want to blame white folks. But if you take race out of the equation, then it's just a matter of who was best at meeting out violence. Hmm. There was a particular group that developed particular ways to meet out violence more effectively. But every group is violent. Yeah. More so males, but every group tried to subjugate one another, Mm -hmm. had conflicts with one another. Then here comes a group that's just better at meeting out injury. So then they become the dominant group. But are the impulses different than any other human being? Nope.
6: It's like violence is currency.
15: Right. Here's human nature. Anybody who's running something is always resented by those that don't, whoever they are. Generally, employees resent the boss.
5: Mm-hmm.
15: Boss maybe has some antipathy towards employees. Yeah. And that's just human nature. So now you have group A that is the dominant group. And the Bs and the Cs and the Ds resent that group for what they do. But if it wasn't Group A, was in that same position, it would still be that same dynamic. Yeah. I don't think the dynamic ever changes. As it stands out now, it happens to be white folks. For whatever reason, those are. I mean, I have my theories for
6: Tell me your theory.
15: Well, I think that Europeans, because they're cold weather people, cold weather and scarcity breed certain behaviors. Aggression punctuality, because if it's cold, we got to know exactly where we're going, what time we're going to get there, we're going to freeze to death. Uh-huh. So those behaviors run into warm weather behaviors where it's nice out here, things are plentiful. If we get there in an hour or two hours, it might not be as crucial <laughs> because there'll still be stuff there when we get there. Right. So it's more of a conflict of behaviors. Interesting. Because Europeans were slaughtering each other Yeah. and developing the means to do so. And then they just took that show on the road.
6: (laughs) I listened to your album. was really great. That was just a foray. You did that at a black club, right?
15: I did it at a club where blacks were at. Yes, I did. (laughs) Um,
6: We used to say that. (laughs) I can't say black club anymore. Yeah, of course. We used to talk about that. I mean, there are some rooms that are pretty much the audience and the performers, for the most part, are black. Cotton Club. Was oh, absolutely. That.
15: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, for brevity's sake, right. you said it. <laughs> no, I got you.
6: Well, you can school me. We might have said things 15 years ago that's not okay to say anymore. I don't know.
15: Yeah, I don't know. We might still say those things. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I am trying to do more performing in front of more black people. Whoever likes me, that's great. I appreciate yeah. that. White folks, whoever that Latinos, South Asians, <laughs> Inuit. <laughs> But I just want to avail myself to more black folks as well.
6: Yeah, because I guess for a while you were in front of mostly white audiences.
15: Predominantly, yeah. Which was fine. It's just a different sensibility. You know, any group that shares a commonality, there's just things sometimes black people will get in a way that white people will not. And I'm not saying all black people will get it and all white folks won't, but I'm generalized.
6: Sure. Can you give me an example of a bit that would be different?
15: Uh, I can't think of it, but it's just a knowing if you mention the black folks, and then the police showed up.
6: Yeah. Or that might
15: be even too, I think not white folks kind of understand what that means. But
6: But you can have a shorthand.
15: Exactly. You all might bring similar experiences or sensitivities to something. Yeah. But I, I like a mixed audience, all groups together.
6: That's my favorite, too. If the artist all white, it's not going to be as good for me. If it's all black, I'm probably not going to do as well, but if it's a nice mix.
15: Right, right, right. And I think that if you're the type of person that would attend a function that would be mixed, it probably speaks a certain mindset that you have.
6: There was one time you took me to a Southside restaurant, and a guy came in, he was just sort of acting crazy, and you were annoyed, and you you said something like every time you take a white person to Southside, something that reinforces stereotypes happens. Do you remember that?
15: I genuinely don't, and I'm glad I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I probably was thinking, man, that's the last time I try to play cultural ambassador.
6: Do you see yourself as an ambassador to white people? Are you a lot of white people's only black friends, or you feel like you're representing?
15: You know what? Probably more when I was younger. Back in those days, I probably functioned as one of the few black people, some of the white folks that I knew knew. But I wasn't trying to be that. It just kind of happened over the years, man, I've extricated myself from those types of environments just because you get tired of being the only black in the room or that type of comedy or explaining things to people. Because in some ways, it's like, man, you know what? You live in the same country I live in. How come you don't know stuff? Or how come you haven't made an effort? You know, I'm here around you. Yeah. Why is that the deal? I mean, I know it's the human nature as most people associate with those who are similar, but particularly amongst quote unquote artists. How come your mind is so closed? You know, I get why civilians are like that, but we're supposed to be...
6: Above all that. Yeah, or
15: even to have the bravery to plunge deep into it.
6: Yeah, I could see that getting old. And you felt like you were doing more than your share of that work to connect?
15: Yeah, no, nah, I mean, because it's you, it's fine. But even conversations like this, you get tired of having Yeah. Like, you know what? It's not like
6: I'm from Mars, you know? I'm from down the street, <laughs> yeah. basically. No, believe me, there's a part of me that feels like, ah, i got (laughs) to... But I'm doing this show about this subject. I feel like i got to call Dwayne, you know. But I hear you.
11: Uh... And that's
15: fine, man. I mean, it's you, man. We've had conversations about many things. But that's when you know there's progress. When conversations amongst people of different races don't have to do with them being of different races.
6: Exactly, yeah.
15: When that becomes secondary or third dairy, (laughs) you know. I had a Jewish girlfriend, and she'd be talking about the Holocaust, and I'd be talking about slavery, and it was like a game show called
6: Top That Atrocity. (laughs) Why do you think we play that game? For
15: many reasons, man. People want other people to have empathy or compassion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just want people to see what other people might be capable of in the worst sense, depending on who it is you're telling. Yeah. The bit was my girlfriend and I were playing top atrocity, and then there was a Navajo cat that came downstairs <laughs> and told both of us to shut the hell up. <laughs> so.
6: Maybe there's also an element like we don't want to be asked to feel bad for other people. So if we have the top atrocity, then you can't make demands on me.
15: Absolutely. Right. Then it absolves me from having to extend myself for you when everybody should be only feeling sorry for me. Yeah. It just appeals to our narcissism, which uh-huh. is just another human characteristic not to diminish those events at all.
6: Of course, yeah. But in
15: a human level, it's just whatever it is I can use to keep the attention on me, to keep the sympathy coming towards me. Whatever is at my disposal, I'm going to use it.
6: Yeah. So you're saying that all the complaining about slavery just comes down to narcissism. That's my takeaway. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's
15: it. Thank goodness for slavery, because now I can make people feel bad about me at parties and maybe get a few phone numbers. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just saying... No, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But now I'll say this, too. A lot of people's behavior in America, on both sides, is due to the legacy of slavery to this day. For sure. That still resonates. It still has an effect. Of course.
6: I mean, I think about that like how I'm neurotic because of something my parents did but I know that their parents did other stuff to them. Stuff gets handed down, and something as extreme as slavery for hundreds of years is not going to just go away in a generation.
15: Right. Black folks in this country, those whose relatives go all the way back to slavery, were slaves longer than they had been free. Slavery was around a minute. So a lot of those behaviors are still embedded and become part of cultural folk ways and still basically suffering from post-traumatic slave syndrome, <laughs> just to try to get them to see that. Yeah. But people just say, ah, oh, you know, let it go.
6: Yeah, white racists will be like, ah, oh, let it go. That's ancient history. Black people just got to get over it. Yeah, what do you think about Jews? They're Christ killers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Right. <laughs> Good one, Dan.
15: <laughs>
6: Thank you. Uh, I have a memory that you like the Indigo Girls.
15: Yeah, Bob. I like ones well, that cut closer to fine.
6: Oh, yeah. I feel like you like telling white people that because you think we'll be surprised. <laughs> probably a lot of white people would be surprised. Man, I like Toad
15: the Wet Sprocket. I was listening to them yesterday. Uh-huh. I love rock. I love folk. Bob Dylan is my all-time boy. I That is the genius of all geniuses, brother. <laughs> I, mean, I have eclectic taste. Uh-huh. I was doing a benefit show in New Lenox, all white folks. And I was on stage, and I mentioned Merle Haggard. And a woman in the audience says, you know who Merle Haggard is? <laughs> yeah, I live in America, too. You probably didn't know that.
6: <laughs> well, I remember when I was a kid, and I would be driving in my car if I saw black people. I, <laughs> I wouldn't want them to hear you me point. playing. No. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> no. But I'd turn up the Run DMC or something because I'd want them to know I was Okay. Black people don't do that. Like, there's a white guy put on some Billy Joel. <laughs> right. It doesn't happen, but right, right, right. <laughs> except for you,
15: right? You turn up the Run DMC, but you'd be going past people getting out of church. <laughs> I'm gonna turn up this Run DMC to film. I'm with the program. <laughs> I'm just gonna presume that they love Run DMC. It might be a group <laughs> of black folks who have no idea.
6: Right, right, right. No, I would be teenagers. I wouldn't. do it, But that's funny. <laughs>
15: Look at those old women at that bake sale. Let me blast this out Cool J.
6: Let them know I'm okay.
15: Right. But when people think like that, it illustrates their lack of contact with those groups.
6: Yeah, it's feeble, but it's sort of an attempt at contacting or connecting. Is it? Is it
15: attempt at connecting, or is it an attempt at protecting? Huh? You know, let me just throw this cloak of accessibility on until I can get through this situation. And then it's back to whiteness, back to obliviousness, <laughs> Yeah, back to my insular world. You know what I mean?
6: Yeah. I'm sure you're right that that's part of it. But I do feel like part of it was, I want these guys to like me. I think they're cool. I want them to think I'm cool. Yeah. It's not just, I want them to not hurt me. It was kind of a reaching out, I think. But I, I hear what you're saying.
15: Right. But if somebody had a close association or a friendship with a person not of their race or color, yeah. I don't think that they feel the need to prove to a group that they're down or right. need to be light because that's already been validated within themselves.
6: Oh, for sure. This was when I was like 17, 16. I was going to Jewish day school, so <laughs> it's true. Like, I didn't I didn't even know non-Jewish white people, so I was definitely insulated <laughs> growing up in Skokie.
15: I, I've done that, too, because I remember when I was 17, I went past the synagogue, and I would blast the fiddler on the roof, <laughs> brother. Woo! Turn it up!
6: son <laughs> <Tradition. laughs> I know what you're saying though well, That's true I was insulated So you're right on But I just thought Maybe when you tell White people That you like indigo girls There's a similar Kind of thing happening Where you're just saying like I'm not so different As you might think I am Yeah
15: Or I am different Than the me That you have in your head Yeah yeah So don't even think about blasting the rum DMC Because I'm not that big a fan <laughs> Closer
5: I am find. Closer I am
6: I'm speaking with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, clinical psychologist, professor, and former president of Spelman College. She has written and spoken widely about race, including at President Clinton's Summit on Race Relations. Hi, thanks for talking with me.
8: Happy to talk with you.
6: You say there's a taboo about talking about race. Someone will be trying to point someone out, and they'll be like, the person in the red shirt with the glasses, uh, I mean, the one black guy in a sea of 40 white people, you can't just say that? But there is that fear among white people about just noticing race. Where do you think that comes from?
8: Imagine a white child sitting in the grocery cart and sees a dark-skinned person for the first time and says in that loud preschool voice, (laughs) Mommy, why is that woman so dark? The first response of that parent is likely to be shh, you know, to hush the child. Sometimes I'll ask an audience to think about their earliest race-related memory most people, their earliest memory is around first, second grade. And then you ask what emotion is associated with it. And they'll call out fear, embarrassment, shame, confusion, Mm -hmm. sadness. They tend to be words of discomfort. And then I ask them, have you ever told anyone? And almost always, the majority of people in the room did not Usually, a six- or seven-year-old will let you know if they're having confusion. Often, people will say, tonight was the first time I thought about that in years. It got buried. Exactly. And I think a lot of our experiences with race, because they are painful or because we don't have the language for it, or because so much in our environment is telling us metaphorically or literally to hush about it, we do bury it.
6: Your course is an extended affair. You wrote that these one-day diversity training seminars often do more harm than good. Why is that?
8: In one day, typically, people have enough conversation to feel uncomfortable, but not enough to really feel like they've made any significant progress. But when you have time, people can disagree and be frustrated with one another, but they've made a commitment to come back next week. And when they continue, they start to feel a sense of progress and mutual understanding that allows them to move from conversation to action that makes a difference.
6: So I guess that means there's a danger in us having this short conversation that we're only going to do the first part. Do you ever have that worry when you do an interview like this?
8: Not really. <laughs>
5: okay. <laughs>
8: My book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, uh-huh. a lot of people will tell me the first chapter upsets me, and I'll say, Keep reading. And in fact, at the end of the book, people will say, I'm glad I kept reading. And now I get what you're trying to say. And I think the conversation that we need to have with each other is like that. Maybe the first conversation is challenging. Maybe it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. But keep having it. It gets better.
6: What do you say to people who think we live in a pure meritocracy?
8: I tell them to read their history books. (laughs) 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 Um, When I was teaching, this was the hardest point that students struggled with. So much of our national rhetoric is about people working hard and getting what they deserve. But the more they learned about history, you know, just facts, the better they understand the notion of a meritocracy as an American ideal, but not an American reality.
6: Can you give some examples? Well,
8: let's just talk about Social Security. Okay. When Social Security was enacted... The Southern legislators were very opposed to benefits going to African Americans. And so part of the compromise around the initial approval of Social Security was it won't go to domestic workers and agricultural workers. The legislation didn't say it won't go to African Americans, but who were those domestic workers right. and agricultural workers? Yeah. And then you think about the children who are trying to care for those parents not receiving any government assistance that impacts that family's ability to support the next generation, send them to college, et cetera. After World War II, part of the availability of VA home loans was that they'd be used for new construction housing in suburban communities. A lot of those suburban communities had racial covenants to keep Black people out, so Black veterans didn't have the same access. Again, the policies are not necessarily written in a race-specific way, but the implementation was
6: very race-specific. Right. Kind of like the voter ID laws today. Exactly. You talked about the energy it takes people in a minority position to just exist, and I think that's another level of privilege that can be overlooked.
8: Sure. Like the talk that parents have to have with their children to at least try to minimize the possibility of a negative, potentially lethal encounter with police while they're just out being teenagers. Or just the daily encounters with people who, you know, I think of some of the experiences I've had when my husband and I were first married, we moved to Santa Barbara, California. And we were early in our careers, so we were looking for rental housing. And it's difficult for people to determine my ethnicity based on my accent. And there were a number of occasions where I was told on the phone the apartment was available. And when I showed up, the person would tell me that the apartment was no longer available. I've had experiences of being, not lately, but being in a grocery store, minding my own business, shopping, having someone ask me to help them pick out
6: a watermelon. (laughs) Not a watermelon.
8: Yes, a watermelon. How do you know if it's a good watermelon? (laughs) You know, I can't tell you.
5: (laughs) Wow.
8: So, I mean, in the scheme of things, does that ruin your life? It does not, but it can aggravate
5: you for sure. Sure. But
8: more important are the big things like differential sentencing that can send somebody to jail for years, Right. differential health care treatment.
6: Yeah. Can you talk about your I am exercise? We all have multiple identities.
5: Mm-hmm.
8: When I think of myself, I can think about my identity as African-American as a female, but I also have to think about The benefits that come to me as someone who was lighter skinned, raised Christian, able bodied, heterosexual, grew up in a middle class family. I would ask my students to fill in the following sentence. I am blank. And you can list a lot of things about yourself. I am 18. I am hungry. I am shy. But what you would pretty consistently find is people who are in subordinate categories will mention that. Women are more likely to say, I'm a woman. Men often don't mention their gender. Mm-hmm. A person in a racial or ethnic minority is much more likely to put, I am African American, I'm Latina. White European Americans, more often they don't mention it. Somebody might write, I'm Jewish or I'm Muslim. And evangelical Christians will often say I'm Christian, but mainstream Presbyterians don't. <laughs> right. You know.
5: Yeah.
8: Somebody in the LGBT community, might mention, I'm gay, but I've never had a student write, I'm heterosexual. The dominant category, perceived as the social norm, tends not to be mentioned. I mentioned a lot of things about myself earlier. I didn't say I am two-legged, though
6: I am. Right. right? Well, doesn't that suggest that it's somewhat benign? You're not going to mention you're two-legged because it's just not of note.
8: And it doesn't negatively impact me, right? right. If I were in a wheelchair that would be something I'd probably talk about. It would probably be on my list Uh because it impacts my daily living. Of course, having two legs impacts my daily living, but I'd take it for granted. Mm
6: -hmm. You wrote something that really surprised me, and Mm -hmm. that was the need for white pride. Yes. I've always thought of that as just a code word for hate. You know, I can acknowledge my whiteness in terms of recognizing the advantages it gives me, but to feel anything positive about it just seems to go against the idea that skin color is a preposterous line of demarcation.
8: Certainly, I'm not talking about the white pride of the Klan, but I've spent a lot of time with young people who are really focused on their identities. The college years are a time when people are really trying to figure out who they are, who they want to be in the world. So young people of color, often that means rejecting the negativity that has been associated with Mm -hmm. their group and trying to find ways that are affirming white students often haven't given much thought to their own whiteness. But when they start learning about our history in the United States, thinking about where did people like me fit into this story, they often find themselves in the place they don't want to be. They don't want to be identified with the oppressor, with the slave owner. So what is the alternative to that? Maybe just say race doesn't matter. Well, it did matter and it continues to matter in our society. You can't just say, I'm not going to pay attention to it, but you could pay attention to it in a way that doesn't make you feel bad, in a way where you identify with the allies, those who stood up for the oppressed. There's a long history of white people who have been on the side of justice. And to the extent we know those stories, they can inspire more such actions. And that's what I mean by claiming pride in that tradition of resistance to
6: oppression. I come up against this as a Jewish person. There's a lot of pride that goes along with being of the people that created Einstein and Freud and all that. Sure. But sometimes I feel like I don't know why I should get any credit for what these other people did. And if I take... (laughs) The credit for them I have to take the blame for Bernie Madoff or something, which I don't want to do. I don't yeah. just...
8: Well, of course, each of us is an individual. And of course, we all have to take responsibility for our own actions, but it's hard to do something you haven't seen others do. When you say you take pride in Einstein, it's not that you did what Einstein did, but these things are possible for people like me.
5: Uh-huh
8: it's one of the things that's so exciting to young African Americans at the time of Barack Obama's election. Someone like me could be the president of the United States. Right. How exciting is that? And when you really understand how systemic racism is, you can get quite overwhelmed by it or discouraged. Like how is it even possible to interrupt this cycle, which has been going on for so long. And so it can be inspiring to know about similarly situated people who have been able to make a difference? They could do it, so can you.
6: Right. I totally understand and agree with you, but it feels sticky, this area. Yeah. You know, Tanahasi Coates' book, Between the World and Me
1: mm-hmm. Black beauty was never celebrated in movies, in television, or in the textbooks I'd seen as a child. From Jesus to George Washington, serious history was the West, and the West was white. This was all distilled for me in a quote I once read from the novelist Saul Bellow. Who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus, Bellow quipped?
6: That quote really made me angry. And it's funny that I also felt shame because the person who said that was Jewish. So it's tapping into that thing again. Like, why do I have to feel ashamed of what Saul Bellow said? I would agree with you that you don't need to feel shame. (laughs) But isn't that the flip side of feeling proud of Einstein?
8: I don't know. It's an interesting question. I think many black people, when something bad happens and you find out a black person did it, you feel like, oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) because you know you're viewed as a member of a group.
6: Yeah, I was once on a bus in Chicago and went through where Cabrini Green is. There came a time where I was the only white person on the bus. And there was one homeless person who was yelling and ranting the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I felt that my presence there changed the dynamic. And all the other black people on the bus were sort of embarrassed. Yeah. Even the bus driver apologized to me at the end. I was like, you don't have to apologize.
8: Yeah. I mean, I guess the question at the core of what you're saying is, what does it mean to feel a sense of group identity? Why can't we just all be individuals? And maybe in an ideal world, we would all be individuals and or our sense of group would not be so specific. If we identified as human beings with a shared responsibility, would that sense of shared humanity lead us to not feel embarrassment for that homeless person yelling on the bus, but concern for who is that person and what do they need?
6: Yeah. You talked about Trey Ellis talking about how his Jewish friends never acknowledged race, and it made him feel like he had to keep a part of him hidden. And obviously, the goal is not blindness to our differences, but acceptance of them and engagement with them. But I think behind the difficulty is something decent, the sense that we're all human, and what color our skin is just shouldn't be part of the conversation.
8: But part of the challenge there is having an experience that you're not able to process because the people around you aren't able to acknowledge that experience. I interviewed a man, African-American family, living in a white neighborhood, and their kids going to almost entirely white schools, and he said, sometimes teachers will say, I treat all the kids the same, and he said, and my answer is, the same as what? Are you treating them as though they're all white? My kids are not white. They're not having the same experience. They're not seeing themselves represented in the school books. They're not affirmed daily in the curriculum. I want you to recognize that their experience might be different and how you might need to accommodate for that.
10: Right.
6: A lot of Dr. King's language about content of our character and the day of man as man has been co-opted by conservatives.
8: Oh, and, there's no question about that.
6: But it's an interesting thing. I mean, I'm not taking that anti-affirmative action line, but I do like those Dr. King quotes.
8: Yeah, I'm with you that we should work toward that place. But we're not in that place yet. And yeah. in an ideal world, we would be in a place where we didn't have to think about those things because those wouldn't be the realities in people's lives. Sure. But they are. And so I think it's important to both hold out the vision of what is possible in that sense of shared humanity and also acknowledge what is.
6: It's a tough balancing act. It is. Some people feel like to give too much attention to race is a way of perpetuating this crazy classification that caused all these problems in the first place.
8: It is a challenge. On the one hand, we talk about racial categorizations as though they were scientifically meaningful, which the Human Genome Project has told us they're not. Yeah. But in terms of people's lived experiences the social meaning of these categories is still alive and well. So that is the tension. How do you talk about it without continuing to reify it? But if you don't talk about it, that doesn't eliminate it. And increasingly, there's this research about unconscious bias. And so it's a very complex topic, which is why there's so much to talk about. But more than that, I think we just have to look at the day-to-day lived realities and the ways in which people who are isolated from quality education, economic opportunity, access to health care, differential treatment and criminal justice system, so many really life-altering issues that need to be addressed. One can speak about these things abstractly, but in the day-to-day world, it's life and death consequences for people.
6: So in addition to her life's work, we can all thank Dr. Tatum for redirecting me before I did another hour on identity. So let's look at one of the more important things she talked about.
8: People who are isolated from quality education.
6: Here's Jonathan Kozel, author of Still Separate, Still Unequal. I
13: have friends in wealthy suburbs all over the country. And they always say, Jonathan, you know I deeply care about those children. But can you really solve this kind of problem by throwing money at it? They love that expression. So, you know, I always ask them where their kids go to school. And typically, if they don't go to private school, they live in a very wealthy suburb where the district maybe spends $10,000 more each year on every child than it spends in poor neighborhoods. And these people have the nerve to ask me, can you really solve this problem by throwing money at it? I always say, sure. That's the best way I know. Dump it from a helicopter. (laughs) I don't know a better way to help a school principal reduce the size of class from 32 to 16 so teachers have twice as much time for every child. I don't know a better way to flood a school library with delicious, exciting books. I don't know a better way to put a new roof on a collapsing building.
6: Maybe it doesn't seem obvious how that's about race, but which schools people go to and how those schools are funded is based on where people live, and where people live has a lot to do with race. Here's ta Coates talking about an emblematic man's story.
1: We tend to think of segregation and Jim Crow, separate water fountains, separate bathrooms, but it's not merely excluding somebody. It's the taking of resources from one group for the betterment of another group. And this happens in all sorts of ways. Slavery is obviously the most direct way, but Clyde Ross, who was born in Mississippi, has his family's land taken out from underneath him and reduced to sharecropping. He went, served in World War II, came back, and he moved north to Chicago. But when he went to get that emblem of middle class America that we exalt, a home, when he went to buy a home, he found that he had actually been cut out of society in a much more complicated way. Home buying in this country was subsidized. We had an FHA that insured loans, but African-Americans were totally cut out of that.
13: FHA, Federal Housing Administration.
1: Yes. And not only were they cut out of it, we had redlining. We're in a neighborhood in which African-Americans live, cannot receive FHA funding. And banks decided who they were gonna lend money to based on FHA policy, largely. On the Atlantic website, you'll see we have actual maps where you can look at a city like Chicago and see where the loans were and where the loans weren't. And this was a practice that lasted on paper into 1960 and likely much longer than that. And when you cut people out of the legitimate loan market, they tend to go to the illegitimate loan market, less regulated places. And one of those places was contract sellers they would come to a neighborhood where it looked like it might flip, which is to say, become black. And they would say to them, listen, you need to sell as quickly as possible, because the minute these folks move in, your property values are going to go down. And to spread that process along, Contract sellers might hire an African-American woman to, say, stroll down the street with a baby carriage. They might call a number for a house in that neighborhood and ask for a typically black Southern name like Johnny May. And in so doing, they would then be able to buy the house at a relatively lower rate. And then they would turn around and sell the house to a black family at a higher rate. That's bad in and of itself. Piled onto to that, the contract system did not award the home buyer the deed. So I tell you that you've bought, but you actually haven't. I saddle you with all the responsibilities of home ownership. That is to say, anything that goes on wrong in that house, you're responsible for. But the minute you don't make one of your payments, I also have the ability to kick you out of that house. And contract sellers recycle African-American families through these homes. So you come in and you put down your down payment for $2,000 or so. You may be able to make the payments for a year two years. But the minute you miss the payment, I throw you out, I keep your down payment, I keep all the payments you've made at that point, and then I rinse and repeat over and over and over and over again.
6: I never knew about any of this. I got a fairly liberal education, but redlining was never a part of it. And I want to say this wasn't that long ago. Until 53 years ago, there were black people in America denied the right to vote. Only 51 years ago, the Supreme Court handed down the Loving decision, which struck down laws against interracial marriage. That it went to the Supreme Court means 51 years ago, there were still people fighting against that decision. Still people who didn't merely feel uncomfortable with interracial marriage, but who were confident enough in their racism to fight for it to be the law. Not just uneducated, toothless hillbillies but lawyers in suits, standing in the highest court and arguing for the right of the state to jail people of different shades of skin for loving each other, 51 years ago. And winning that day didn't mean all the people arrayed against equality suddenly disappeared. And this stuff doesn't stop having an impact the moment it's ended. Here's Daria Reuthmeyer.
0: When I read a book about ant colonies and monopolies, I had that aha moment. The book talked about the way market monopolies reproduce themselves, even in the absence of ongoing illegal behavior. The classic example is the Windows operating system. For a short time, Microsoft excluded others from the operating systems market using a variety of techniques, bundling, exclusive contracts. And that small competitive advantage Then became self-reinforcing. Software authors wanted to write for the most popular operating system. And consumers shopping for an operating system wanted the widest range of software. And the Windows Advantage snowballed and excluded all other competitors, even in the absence of ongoing bad behavior. So when the Department of Justice came to ask Microsoft what was going on, they said, we stopped a long time ago. And as a result of these feedback loops, Microsoft was able to lock in its advantage for quite a while. There is a counterpart with regard to our racial story. Homeowners' associations, school districts, unions, all excluded very blatantly people of color for economic advantage. We tend to think of racial discrimination as something that's irrational, motivated by animus. Whites profited economically from this anti-competitive behavior and it is those cartels early behavior that creates this initial advantage that then reproduces itself through the feedback loops even in the absence of intentional discrimination processes that we take for granted end up reproducing racial inequality family wealth social networks neighborhood networks and then institutional feedback loops if intentional discrimination were to end tomorrow these feedback loops would continue to reproduce racial disparity.
16: So, we sitting here looking at this dope-ass Black Panther poster. And the conclusion that we have come to is that this is what white people get to feel all the time all the
1: time
16: <laughs> since the beginning of cinema you get to feel empowered yes. like this and represented <laughs>
7: this This is what y'all feel like all the time i would love this country too
6: <laughs> when my dad was a kid black people were portrayed like this
17: listen here fellas here's the jam i was in i discovered
13: that this uncle of mine done cut me out of his will Ooh, now there's a serious thing. He thinks I is undisresponsible. And this.
4: Oh my goodness, I fell asleep and missed the whole show. If Mr. Benny ever finds out, he'll put me in irons and hang me from the highest yard arm. <laughs> I better hurry and get this room straightened up.
6: When I was a kid, it was better. There was Denzel and Oprah and Eddie Murphy, but there was still a lot of bad stuff.
2: Wait till Otis sees us! He loves
18: us! My We're the only white people here. We are gonna die.
4: You are my sugar
2: You sure it's Don't worry about something. a thing, man.
4: If we dance with your dates, why no? Not at all.
2: Go right ahead. If I was in your shoes, I'd be uh, leaving. What a good idea! The Negroes took our dates. We're
5: out.
6: That was in the 70s, but. The terror of white people stepping into a cartoonishly scary black world was still seen as funny in the 80s.
7: I don't think we belong here.
11: Well, maybe you'd feel better if you just got out there and mingled.
2: We don't mingle, okay?
11: Well, maybe you'd be more comfortable if I invited all these people back to your house and we could all mingle there.
2: We'll mingle. I'm telling you my story, man. Last year, I was insane for this crazy little 8th grade bitch. Crazy insane?
16: Insane? I'm
2: telling the truth here. And what did to me was these big titties she had. For a 13-year-old girl, man.
6: (laughs) I grew up with that. What did it do to black kids to grow up with the message that this is what black people are? What did it do to white kids? I got to know. And beyond bad portrayals, there was just a lot of omission. Dylan Marin has a series on YouTube of famous movies edited down to just the words spoken by a person of color. You get it? So it's not just black people, just any word spoken by anybody who's not white. Here's E.T.
19: Hey, who are you? Open the door, son.
6: Mrs. Doubtfire.
20: Sick. <laughs> Mom!
6: Lord of the Rings.
1: Saruman.
6: And then there are the movies I can't share because there isn't even that much. Jaws, Toy Story, Big, Aladdin, which is supposed to be about people of color. The entire Harry Potter series edited this way, eight movies, about 20 hours, is six minutes long. Here's Dylan Maron himself.
7: The movies that I use in the Every Single Word series tell universal stories. E.T., not about whiteness. These are amazingly crafted stories that are about huge universal themes. George Gerbner, a cultural anthropologist, says, if you see yourself represented in the fictional world, you feel that you exist. And if you don't, that is symbolic annihilation if the universal stories we keep telling only use white bodies to tell those stories. That is telling everyone else that our stories shouldn't exist, or at the very best, they don't really matter that much. The other night I was talking with my friend Sinke,
13: and he was explaining to me now when a member of the Mandate encounters a situation where there appears no hope at all, he invokes his ancestors. Perhaps we have feared an appeal to you might be taken for weakness, but we have come to understand, finally, that who we are is who we were. We desperately need your strength and wisdom, triumph over our fears our prejudices ourselves give us the courage to do what is right and if it means civil war then let it come and when it does may it be finally the last battle of the american revolution
6: dr tatum says it's good to know there were white people in history doing more than oppressing But telling those stories risks falling into the white savior trope. In our entertainment, even when good-intentioned stories about racism are told, it's usually in this way. With white people making the speeches and sad-eyed black people looking on. So whether it's about inner-city schools or apartheid or the civil rights movement, the story is still focused on white heroes and white villains, and the people of color are just there as a sort of moral testing grounds for the whites not as subjects, but objects. White people being dominant means there are actually going to be lots of true stories that work this way, of the disempowered people suffering the abuse of some white people and being helped by others, like Oscar Schindler was in a position to help my people during World War II. But these stories need to be told in a way that doesn't continue putting black people in the backseat. Gene Smith is someone I heard about growing up my dad used to run a hotel in Chicago called the Sherman House, and their paths crossed there. i never heard about his life from his point of view, though. So I asked, and he was kind enough to talk to me. I heard you got a Medal of Honor recently. You went out to D.C. for that? Yeah, it was about 400 surviving
21: black Marines. Some of them was on carts. They couldn't sit up. They couldn't walk. We met all the big shots. And they said how wrong it was back in those days, and they was asking for forgiveness.
6: Do you feel like you have forgiveness?
21: Yeah, I do. Because during that time, being black, you were segregated everywhere. You were born what year? December twenty fourth, 1923. Birmingham, Alabama.
6: A Christmas Eve baby, huh?
21: Yeah, I regretted it.
6: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right, because you always get a birthday and Christmas present combo.
21: Yeah.
6: What did your parents do?
21: My father was a label, and my mother, she worked in a laundry. I grew up in a ghetto, and it's rough. You had to defend yourself in the block you live in. There's always some guy trying to bully you around.
6: I didn't think Alabama had ghettos. I think that is a big city thing. No, Alabama was loaded with ghettos.
21: They are what they call alleys.
6: Were you a tough guy when you were a kid? No,
21: but I had three brothers if you bother one, you have all four of us on you, <laughs> <laughs>
5: you know.
21: And the brother under me set the house on fire. What? Yes, playing with matches. And my mother and father both was at work. And I remember coming around with my wagon and see all these fire engines and all this fire coming out of all the windows. It was our house. And I remember my mother coming and crying. Everything we have was gone. And I went to live with my dad's sister and her husband. They were what they call middle-class Negroes. <laughs>
5: <You know? laughs>
21: and that's one thing that I have on my brothers. They don't know what that means.
6: Where did your brothers go?
21: They stayed home. My aunt and uncle bought me my first suit. And I was well-dressed when my brothers were raggedy. Till the time I graduated from grammar school, and I, my mother said told my dad it's time for him to come home with us. I didn't really want to go home. <laughs> I could go to the grocery store and get anything I want on that bill. And they had a older daughter who was a school teacher. She would drill me every night.
6: It sounded like your brother burning your house down was the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> it was a good thing. And then you went into the Army, right? No, the Marine Corps. Marine Corps. Don't, Pardon me. Please don't say Army. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go straight out of school? Yes, I got drafted
21: at eighteen. 1942.
6: Right in the thick of it. Where do you get shipped to? The
21: South Pacific.
6: It was still segregated back then?
21: Yeah, we couldn't go over on the white side.
6: When did that change?
21: President Truman stopped all this segregation in 1948. I got out in the 46th.
6: That's something to be segregated and shipped overseas to fight for your country. You have
21: no idea. <laughs>
6: well, tell me about it. Well, Overseas,
21: it was just like the United States. White Marines was the one location and we was in the other one, but the same camp. We had different child halls, different everything. Even at the movies, they had ropes down there. White Marines was on one side, we was on the other side. It was terrible. And we were in tents, they called Tent City. And some of them had male
6: huts. What about in terms of missions? Did they give you guys the more dangerous things to do?
21: We definitely thought so. What they did with us, the ammunition carried us up you know, to the front lines, that was dangerous. For the white guys. Yeah, to the white guys who was all in caves and bunks and everything. And we were out in the open and hauling this stuff up there in trucks.
6: So how long were you in the Pacific for?
21: 28 months.
6: Was it scary?
21: No, when you that age, you don't think of anything else. All we used to think about was getting jabs and I'm sure they were thinking the same way.
6: So what did you do when you got back?
21: I decided Birmingham wasn't for me anymore because I was going to get killed with my thoughts.
6: What do you mean? You
21: know, I had got accustomed to being halfway treated decent. And down there, being called Boy, John, Will, and nigger. Anything that people can come up with. I decided, hey, this is not what I'll spend 28 months in the
5: Pacific for.
21: I say I'm going to either kill somebody or get killed. So I told my mother, I'm going north. I'm going to Chicago. Yeah. I just feel like I couldn't accept being called boy anymore.
10: Sure.
6: Yeah, I mean, what rank were you when you finished? Sergeant. So you were sir. <laughs> yep. So you went up to Chicago. What were you doing when you got here?
21: Well, I got a job as a breakfast cook.
6: You cooked in the service?
21: Yeah, I wanted rank, I and mean, I noticed these sergeants and corporates when I was in training. Mm-hmm. They told me that they was in cooking school, and you graduate for two stripes automatically.
6: All right, so you got a good resume when you come back?
21: Yeah, I just went to the Pig Congress Hotel, and they hired me
6: as a breakfast cook.
21: And I did that there for about five years. Okay. And then a chef from Boston came in one day, and he said, Hey, guy. Are oh, you going to fry eggs all your goddamn life. <laughs> I said, not if I get a break, because down in the main kitchen, you had about 30 cooks, but not one black. So he transferred me down there.
6: What do you think made him pick you? you were you doing a good job? He thought so.
21: It seemed like he liked me. He used to start and a kid with me all the time.
6: So then you were the first in the main kitchen.
21: Yeah, I was the first black guy down there.
6: How do people treat you?
21: Well, one guy started, and I told myself, hey, I'm going to give this guy a religion.
6: <laughs> what did he say to you?
21: Call me a nigger. So one day he started, and I socked him and knocked him to his knees.
6: Never did that again?
21: No. <laughs> <laughs> He went in the office and he told the chef that had given me this position, that the nigga hit him, and the chef told him, he should have killed you. Nice. And then all the other cooks down there start saying, that nigga crazy, don't mess with him.
6: (laughs) You said I came up from Alabama to get away from people like
21: (laughs) you. He is all around
6: me. (laughs) There's nowhere else to go. You might as well start swinging.
21: (laughs) After that, some of them started being friends. How did you meet your wife? We was in a bridge club. She was something. Her dad was the CPA for Atlanta Life, the largest black insurance company in the United States.
6: They used to have segregated insurance companies, too.
21: Yeah. White companies in 50s and 60s wouldn't take black people. Mm-hmm. It was hard. She was a school teacher.
5: Mm-hmm.
21: She used to take me over to book reading at the University of Chicago. I used to hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Very intelligent. And she was trying to make me intelligent. You know what we used to call her?
6: What's that?
21: A black Jew. <laughs> Why did you call her that? She is tight with money, man. <laughs> she knew how to save money.
6: Well, now I'm very offended by that, sir. <laughs>
21: <laughs> my first wife died oh. after about a month of being pregnant with my third child. She was having problems, and the doctor told me, I wish I could tell you your wife had tuberculosis or something like that, but she has Hodgkin's disease.
5: Oh, God
21: cancer the glands. So baby was born, and a month later she died. I had my hands full.
6: You were still a young man at this time, right? Oh,
21: yeah. I had a 8-year-old son, a 6-year-old daughter.
6: What year was that?
21: 1959.
6: And you got a full-time job and then some.
21: Yeah. But then my present wife was in the bridge club, and about a year later, I started dating her. And it was the second best move I ever made. <laughs> Later on, I went over to the Sherman Hotel. The chef asked the head second cook if he mind working with a black guy. He said no.
6: He was a good guy.
21: Oh yeah, this Italian guy named Gene Vuchelli. He and I got along fine. The second cook in the hotel is the saucier. He's the guy that make all those fancy sauces and all those fancy big meals. So I worked with him, and I really learned the trade. And then one day. He had become the chef, so he made me the
6: swing sous chef. The sous chef, he's like the number two, right? Yeah. This
21: is the real chef. The chef did not run the kitchen. The sous chef run the kitchen. So what was the chef doing? Sitting up in the air-conditioned office <laughs> with the secretary. Uh-huh. The chef had left, and I worked on the several the other
6: chef. They keep bringing in new outsiders and not moving you up, even though you're the guy who really knows what's going on.
21: Yeah, it's very true.
6: Were you getting angry about that?
21: Well, I didn't like it, but if there's nothing you could do about it, I figured, well, at least I'm the assistant executive chef. And I was making a decent living. I could afford to pay my mortgage.
6: Did you kind of have a hope each time when someone would leave, like, oh, maybe they're going to give me the nod this time? That's true. Yeah.
21: But they never did. They continued to bring different white chefs in over you. Right. And the Sherman House is a big hotel, something like 1,600 rooms. And he had five or six restaurants and banquets every day.
6: And you pretty much ran it all, huh?
21: Yeah. And this particular year, they hired a guy by the name of Mr. as the head chef. He had a PhD, but he didn't know a thing about food. And one day, the hotel was packed. They had around 400 of these TOPS women.
6: TOPS?
21: Taking off pounds since. That's oh, like a weight loss group? Yeah. Uh huh in there eating three times a day and you had Jewish Passover and the chef insisted on taking his vacation. His boss, he was a nice Irish guy, Jack Wellerford. He didn't have a PhD. So the chef felt superior to him. He didn't like taking orders from him. So he came down and he said, Gene, will you work with me? I said, hey, you the chef's boss, you my boss. Of course I work with you. So he talked to your dad. Your dad came down in the kitchen, and he said, let's have a cup of coffee. So we sat down, and I wondered what's going on.
5: Uh-huh.
21: Your dad said, are you responsible for running the operation when the chef's on leave? I said, yes. He said, well, how do you feel about having a capacitor house plus all of the Jewish Passover and all these QOPS women here eating three times a day? <laughs> I said, well, Mr. Kaufman, far as I'm concerned, it's just another day. Because what he didn't know, I was running it anyway. Right.
6: How come you didn't tell my dad that you'd been doing it before?
21: Because I knew I had to work with him when he come back. And I didn't want a problem. Oh, okay. So I worked 12, 15 hours a day. I didn't have to because we had banquet chef, assistant banquet chef. But I did to make sure everything went smooth.
6: Right. Well, now it's on you.
21: Yeah, that's why I did it. (laughs) Uh So the first week that came back, they was telling I'm nice, everything went, I'm in compliments they have gotten on the food, and he was just smiling. That was on Monday. Wednesday, Joel Sater, who was the general manager, was Polish, and he cursed all the time. (laughs) And he called me and, pardon my expression, he said, Hey, Gene, get your goddamn ass up to my office. So I was wondering, what's going on here? So I got off the elevator on the third floor. Your dad was standing out in the hallway, and he said, hey, Gene, go on in. And I'm still wondering. I walked in, and all the hotel brass was in there. And Joel Sater was sitting behind his desk, and he said, hey, guy, sit your goddamn ass right down here.
6: <laughs> Did you think it was something bad, maybe? I had no idea. <laughs> uh-huh.
21: <laughs> but I didn't see the shelf, though. Right. And he looked at me, and he said, you know what, guy? I said, what? He said, you the new damn sheriff. How about that?
5: <laughs>
21: and I couldn't believe it. The old sater said, you have proven that you can do it. Do you want it? Do you want me to bring
6: somebody else in over you?" I said, no, i take it. How many years did it take before they gave that to you? Oh, about 10. 10 years. So you've been waiting a long time for that moment.
21: I thought it never would arrive, because it was unheard of
15: union came the next
6: day. Here's my dad, Jerry Kaufman, to give you a little behind the scenes. This guy walks into my office,
15: and he was secretary treasurer of the Culinary Workers Union or something like that.
6: He's got a trench coat on, a hat. He looks like something
15: out of an old movie. He's got his hands in his pockets, sits down, doesn't take his coat off, doesn't take his hat off, and says, we don't have black chefs in this town. And I'm, what, 29, 30 years old, and I'm too young and stupid to be worried. So I said, well, you do now. And he said, what do you do if everybody else in the kitchen gets up and walks out tomorrow, leaves him there alone? And I said, are you telling me because I put Gene Smith in as a chef, everybody else might walk out? He says, it could happen. And I reached into my pocket. I took out a pen, put it in front of his face. And I said, speak
6: directly into the microphone. <laughs> and he stood up and walked out. I said, it's a pen. It's a pen. He just walked out. Never saw him again. And that was it. You're a member of this union. Yes, it have been for years. You've been paying your dues. Paying my dues. So the union, they were just bluffing. They didn't walk.
21: <laughs> Not a one walked out. And I lasted from 64 to 73, I think, when the hotel closed.
6: You know, it's weird. My dad told me the story when I was a little boy, and I've always been proud of him for it. And I know you love him for it, too. But he just did what anybody's supposed to do. You were the guy who was qualified. and You've been there 10 years. He just gave the best guy the job.
21: Yeah, but back in those days not many people would have taken on their shoulders what your dad did.
15: How it out already. So embarrassing. I kept saying to him you're the one who did the good job. Yeah. Absolutely great chef. And he's got three kids all PhDs. So he's a good friend.
21: When Uncle Sam called me I know what I'd be called a real McCoy But it was not no different They just call
4: me soldier boy I wonder when I wonder
21: when. Wonder when will I get to be called a man? I do have to wait till I get
5: ninety-three.
6: I have mixed feelings about including this story. It's embarrassingly self-serving, but like I said before, I don't believe that what my dad did is any credit to me. I'm proud of him, though. When you're in a position of being a villain or bystander or ally, I hope you'll choose ally but I hope you'll also consider why the person on the other end might not have the same options. Which is not to say the put-upon in these stories weren't making heroic choices. Gene Smith climbed through ranks that told him over and over that he was not worthy. He had to convince himself and enough people around him to accept a new reality, and he did. This was no white savior story. Gene Smith saved himself. But it kills me to think of the world that would leave one man his whole life feeling indebted to another just for not being a racist.
3: Mr. Foreman, has the jury reached a verdict?
10: It has, Your Honor. We, the jury, find a defendant, Byron Dealer-Beckwith, guilty as a judge. <laughs>
18: It's been a long journey. Medgar, I've gone the last mile of the way. And all I want to say is yay, Medgar! Yay!
6: I watched Ghosts of Mississippi about how after 30 years, they finally convicted the man who murdered civil rights worker Medgar Evers. And of course, everyone was right to celebrate, but it also seemed crazy. Chris Rock has a bit...
2: I take care of my kids. You're supposed a dumb motherfucker. What are you bragging about? What kind of ignorant shit is that? I ain't never been to jail. What, you want a cookie? You're not supposed to go to jail, you low expectation ever motherfucker.
6: And that's what came to me watching that movie, where at such a primitive place that what should have been a simple thing, the easiest of moral questions, turned out to be a decades-long struggle. A black man was murdered for standing up. His family lived 30 years without justice. The murderer lived into old age without justice. It's as if there was a child who couldn't figure out one plus one, and they made a movie about him finally getting the answer. There's an appeal to these stories about the Old South, Mississippi burning and 12 years a slave and mudbound. We like bad guys that are obvious. It was so much easier then to tell right from wrong. We don't like tough problems. We don't like gray. We like black and white. And it's not a pun. I'm saying there's a connection. We like clear categories, balls and strikes, good and evil, us and them. We want monsters on the other side. If a robe-wearing crossburner is what a racist is, then everybody else can feel innocent. Today's racism isn't about men in hoods carrying torches. Mostly. Mostly today's is a subtler. People who are largely decent see things in a slightly self-serving light miss inconvenient truths, fall into tribal thinking, react out of fear or ignorance. Why do people defend themselves against the charge of racism by saying, but I have black friends? Because if you have a binary idea of racism, with innocent angels on one side and racist devils on the other, then having black friends means you must be on the angel side. This is how Trump might really believe it when he says,
12: No, I'm not a racist.
6: When he won, some people pointed to the fact that some of his supporters voted for Obama. At the time, I thought that was interesting.
7: One about the, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million people that voted for right. Barack Obama and then turned around for Donald Trump. How could race be the thing that's motivating?
6: Here's Chris Hayes and Tanahazi Coates.
7: Because people want to say, but they voted for a black man. Right. But
1: race isn't it. global. It doesn't mean that in all cases I will go for the white person. It doesn't mean that in no case can no black person ever convince me of anything. It just means I give an edge to somebody. Which is different. It doesn't mean right. I don't want to hear from any black It's not entirely
7: anything. dispositive no, on a decision. No, no,
1: no, no. no. And, I, and probably no bigotry or system of right. press ever is. France, before the Nazis come and before they ship off X number of Jews, God knows how many, they have Leon Blum as prime minister. Does right. that mean there was no anti-Semitism in France? No, one wouldn't make that case. Racism works by raising the barrier for certain people and lowering the barrier considerably for other people. Go through the list of things that Donald Trump has said. I mean, just take anything on any day. Just randomly look at his Twitter and say, what would have happened if Barack Obama had said that? And if you can construct a world in which Barack Obama can get away with saying all those things and being president... Well, I mean, you're, you're better than me because I don't have those powers of imagination. I mean, it's before just, one like, can come get on, to the counterfactual
7: come of a tape leaking of Barack Obama saying you just grab them by the and they let you do it because right. you're a star right. and being elected. He can be senator. I mean, president. he would never come <laughs> on. It's just not right.
1: even possible.
6: A cop who kills an innocent black person doesn't have to be a full on racist out to slaughter black people. He might have black friends. He might hate racists. He just needs a little more fear of a black guy than a white guy. Like Coates said, it just means the bar to shoot a black man is lower.
22: Point. I grew up with a guy named Tom Dent. Here's Adam Carolla. He was a black guy, but his dad was a hand surgeon. He was rich, and we'd go to his house and eat. I was white. He was black. He went to UCLA. I went and picked up garbage on a construction site. I didn't have an advantage over Tom.
6: White privilege doesn't mean there are no poor white people or rich black people. That's a straw man Carolla was knocking down. White privilege means the bar is higher for black people to do well and lower for white people. If every white person got a free second ticket when they played the lottery, there would still be some black people winning. Good afternoon. The Time will be... we'll... Here's Bill Maher bringing Ta-Nehisi Coates' thought experiment to life.
18: Our friend Reggie Brown's here to help Republicans test their theory that they'd be cool with it if some of the crap that's come out of Trump's mouth was said by Obama. And I stress, this may not be the real Obama, but these are really Trump's words verbatim. What if they had asked Obama how he came by his military strategy and he said... I'm speaking with myself. Number one, because I have a very good brain. (laughs) And I've said a lot of things. (laughs) What if he had said... I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose voters. (laughs) Headline in the New York Post, black man threatened shooting spree gunned down by police. (laughs) And no matter how much scripture Obama cited, Republicans never believed he was really Christian. Imagine if Obama had said... Why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? Another one of Obama's unforgivable flaws was that he didn't find America exceptional enough. So if Bill O'Reilly had asked Obama about Putin being a murderer, it would have been okay if his answer was... Uh, There are a lot of killers. We have a lot of killers. You think our country is so innocent? (laughs) And we haven't even gotten to the Access Hollywood tape. Republicans, you would be okay if Obama had said... Uh, I moved on her like a bitch. <laughs> I just start kissing them. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> they blew a gasket when he said, Cling to your Bible! you're going to tell me you would be okay if our first black president used debate time to brag about the size of his dick? He referred to my hands. If if they're small, uh, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. Look... I don't know the exact definition of white privilege, but being able to talk about grabbing pussies and how big your dick is and still getting elected president, that's gotta come close.
6: This imagining race switched is a good exercise in lots of different situations where we might otherwise overlook a disparity. Here's Dana Stevens and Stephen Metcalf on the Slate Culture Gab Fest processing Donald Trump's victory in 2016.
0: Walking down the street the day after... And thinking about the stuff that he said about women and did to women and the fact that women who look like me said that he can just lead the free world and that's fucking fine made me feel like Mm -hmm. a piece of dirt. My needs mean shit to these people. And of course, every person I would see who was a person of color, I was thinking, welcome to their world, right?
14: Exactly. I'm encased in 18,000 layers of privilege at the center of which... I mistakenly thought was something transcendental, which is my own autonomy. But my autonomy is only an expression of privilege. Anybody's is. If you look at fucking history, civilization happens within a bubble by fucking definition. We all decided not to live in a goddamn Hobbesian jungle. So now I understand... In some tiny reverberant way, I'm not trying to say that I'm now suddenly a member of a fucking oppressed class, but I know now that my autonomy is contingent. And I hope that what comes out of this is a much greater sense of empathy on everybody's part for how contingent anybody's autonomy is and people who are part of historically disesteemed classes, how revocable their human dignity is on a fucking minute by minute basis the fact that the tremors are hitting utterly fucking privileged white middle-class men like me says that this could be the fall of fucking rome
6: i think what they were saying is interesting but i want to focus here on how they said it lots of cursing so while they're talking about their privilege they're exercising it because consider how you might hear that much swearing if it was done by black people dana and steven are white nerds so for them and me, swearing says we're regular folks, not a feat, not pretentious. We can even enjoy the way we might be surprising people. But if black people were doing a show like this, I think they'd be more reserved about swearing so much, because they'd be fighting different stereotypes. I'm not saying this particular example is a huge deal, but it's one of so many you can notice if you start looking. White people don't have to be nearly as self-conscious. We can curse, slurp on a watermelon, even blow up a building, and no one's going to say, look at that white guy doing that. And it's not just about being able to curse. It's about what living with the expectation of being less educated and less articulate does to kids in school, does to their teachers. If you're white, have you ever felt self-conscious dancing in front of black people because of the stereotype that we can't dance? Ever gotten a little stiff because you were thinking about the expectation that you're stiff? Now, play that out for a black kid in a classroom.
2: Affirmative action was put into place to offset policies that the United States government implemented during slavery that affect us today. Now, when I talk about slavery, I'm just talking about a period of time where black people had no rights. So, the 1600s to about 1964. (laughs) You know, give or take a year, depending on when your town decide to act right. (laughs) Now, people go, what happened during slavery that could affect us today? A lot of shit. For instance, during slavery, they used to take the biggest, strongest slaves and breed them and try their best to make big, strong, super slaves. That's right. And there's evidence of that today, like the NFL, for instance. (laughs) And so this is why black people dominate every physical activity in the United States of America, okay? We're only 10% of the population. We're 90% of the Final Four, okay? Basketball, baseball, football, boxing, track, even golf and tennis. As soon as they make a heated hockey rink, we're going to take that shit to (laughs) them. So that's what they did to the big strong slaves and you know what they did to these smart ones or at least the ones they thought were smart they killed them that's what they did so the real smart motherfuckers had to hide the fact that they were smart the law of the land was if you read you die so you know what that means the first black drug dealers didn't even sell drugs they sold books Yo, man, I got two pages, man. I got two pages, man. Check it out, man. Check it out, man. I got two pages, man. Yo, man, yo, man, I got a word. I got a word. Check it out, man. I got a new word, man. So think about the poor slaves that could read, I had to hide it, man. Think about the poor slave that used to drive the buggy in the town every day. And he's driving the buggy, driving the buggy, driving the buggy. And he could read, he's driving the buggy, driving the buggy, driving the buggy. And up ahead, he sees a real busy intersection. He's driving the buggy, driving the buggy, driving the buggy. And then he sees a stop sign. Now he's got a real dilemma. <laughs> oh, Lord, what is I gonna do? And at the last minute, he says, fuck it. And he goes straight through the intersection, has a big old accident, wipes out. <laughs> and the police come. They, nigga, what's wrong with you? You could have killed somebody, nigga. You see that subside? Oh, I don't know what you talking about, sir. <laughs> nigga, you see that subside? That subside right there? Oh, do you mean that octagon thing? <laughs> Nigga, who taught you octagon? Now, don't get me wrong with affirmative action. I don't think I should get a job over a white person if I get a lower mark in a test. I don't think I should get accepted into a school over a white person if I get a lower mark in a test. But if there's a tie, fuck them. <laughs> Shit, you had a 400-year head start, motherfucker! (laughs) (laughs) White man, you're gonna be all right! You know, a lot of people say, if you're the smartest and the brightest, you won't need affirmative action. We'll be able to get rid of affirmative action altogether if you just strive to be the smartest and the brightest. They say that as if the whole country is run by the smartest and the brightest. Now, I was in black schools and white schools, so you can't tell me shit, okay? (laughs) Now, when you go to a class, there are 30 kids in a class. Five smart, five dumb, and the rest, they're in the middle. And that's just all America is. A nation in the middle. A nation of B and C students. But let's keep it fucking real, okay? A black C student can't run no fucking company. A black C student can't even be the manager of Burger King. Meanwhile, a white C student just happens to be the president of the United States of America.
22: I got out of North Hollywood High. I did not go to college. I worked cleaning carpets. Later on, I worked on construction sites. There's a labor. Whatever work donkeys were qualified to do, that's what I did. And I did that for months. And at a certain point, I said, you know what would be a good job for me? Fireman. I'm strong I'm eager for the fray. I have no qualms about my personal safety, and I think I would make a good fireman. Plus, I love chili. (laughs) I love playing foosball. And as far as I could tell, when they're not putting out fires, they're eating chili and playing foosball. So I went down to the fire department in North Hollywood, and I said, I'm gonna put in an application. And they said, fine. I filled it out, I handed it to the guy, and the guy said, don't hold your breath. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, we're not going to be getting to you for some years. And when you're 19 and you're destitute and your stepmom's trying to extricate you from the garage you're living in, some years, it's not a buoy you cling to. And sure enough, I moved out of the house and I kept going five, six years in my carpentry career. I was about 25, 26. And my dad showed up to my apartment one day and he said, this letter came to the house it's from the la fire department and there was a date to take the written test the following weekend i don't even want to be a fireman anymore but because i've waited six years to be a fireman i'm going down to hollywood high on 10 a.m on saturday and i stood in line to get into this place marveling at the fact that it taken six years for them to contact me now imagine if i didn't have white privilege i could have still been waiting but there was a young lady, a small, slightly built lady behind me, could not tell her nationality. Could have been black, Latino, or mixed. And everyone around me, I kept saying, when did you put in your application? When did you put it? And I turned around to her and I said, when did you put in your application? And she said, Tuesday.
6: It's hard to hear that story and not feel sympathetic not feel that something unfair happened. And I think lefties like me have to do more than just dismiss the people who tell them. We have to recognize that close-up affirmative action sometimes feels wrong. We have a sense that if life is a race, the winner should be the fastest runner. But other people have made this point that taking someone's shackles off in the middle of a race and then saying, okay, now let's finish, is not the definition of fairness. You can't just have a goldfish view of history and know what's fair. The context for the L.A. Fire Department is black people and women were largely excluded for most of the history of the country. Legacies still have a leg up in the hiring process, and that helps the white men who have the historical advantage. Even with affirmative action, the L.A. Fire Department remains whiter than the population. And there are ways to do affirmative action that don't mean different standards. Here's Samantha B. on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. All right, we want a
22: diverse staff. How
0: do you go about doing that? You have to do more than just putting out a submission packet and going, "All people apply, please." You have to make calls. You have to contact people who you know from that community. You have to go, "Hey, who do you know who they think?" Who would is be a great?
22: woman who is an African American? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you're asking specifically. You are being
0: really specific and reaching into places where maybe no one's ever been asked before, and you're trying to say, "Hey, tell me all the people you think are great." and tell them we want to hear from them.
14: And do you think that makes for a funnier, better show? A hundred
0: percent. Broadening the point of view, it's going to make you see things that you never thought of before. People bring in jokes that I would have never thought of. People bring in stories that would never have occurred to me. You need people from all different walks of life. It helps so much. I'm not sure why it hasn't.
14: it takes effort, right?
0: It takes a lot of effort.
14: That's the
6: deal across the board. A little more effort from those who live on the easier side of the line for those on the harder side not because we're superior saviors but because we recognize that we've gotten breaks others didn't get and this is a way to make things slightly less unfair I'll tell you a little story I wrote a play and I've been submitting it around and the first time an application asked my ethnicity and I put down white I had a sinking feeling this is gonna work against me I told myself People of color have been excluded for so long, and this intends to remedy that, so it's fair. But there was still a little feeling of grievance in me. About two months later, I had another thought. Through my parents and friends, I have connections to a lot of people in the theater world. My play has gotten into their hands, not because of how good it is, but because of who I know. It's a huge advantage. hadn't occurred to me or that I grew up in a family wealthy enough to take me to the theater on a regular basis. It didn't bump that fairness meter in my gut that chafed at having to put my race on a form. Never questioned it. I might never have had any of these thoughts if I wasn't working on this show, and even immersed in the subject, I still took a long time to get there. If I wasn't working on the show, I might have gone the rest of my life feeling vaguely put upon, vaguely noble for my sacrifice, and never looked any further than that. One reason I didn't catch my privilege, why a lot of people don't, is because it's not explicitly a racial advantage. The benefits of whiteness are indirect. Hardly anyone says, this guy's white, so we're gonna give him a special leg up. Now the way it works is a lot of other people get all the disadvantages for centuries, get poor educations, poor health, poor neighborhoods, and all the extra stress that comes with those things. It goes back to that race analogy where the other people have ankle weights. I don't feel those. It's not like I have a jetpack on my back. This is part of why the word privilege bumps some people. Privilege, I think, sounds like a jetpack, like getting extra. But most of our privilege is about others being held back. It works out the same, white people get to win, but because our advantage is often indirect, someone else's disadvantage, it's easy to miss. There's a lot of incentive not to notice. If we ignore our advantages, we get to feel more pride. We get to feel superior. Also, we don't want to give up our rewards and our good position. And most of us want to think of ourselves as good people. Privilege doesn't say otherwise, but sometimes it feels that way. Add this all up and we're going to feel a lot of resistance when people try to point out our advantages. Another thing at play here is our wiring. It's just human nature not to question good stuff. People say, why me, when they get cancer, but not when they win the lottery. Whatever games you like, you can see this at play. For me, it's poker. When I come from behind with a lucky card, my feeling is yes. When the other person does, I feel disgusted, like their luck is unfair. Bad luck we take personally. Good luck is easy to miss. Good luck is comfortable. It's room temperature, a full belly, good health. It's the absence of problems. There's a huge evolutionary push to notice problems, to have an inner whine. Acceptance is not good for survival. If you were cold and just accepted it, you'd get frostbite. If you're hungry, you get malnourished and sick. We only have alarms for bad stuff, smoke, carbon monoxide, intruders. There's no alarm for taking good stuff for granted, except maybe losing it.
0: As a long-term structural solution, affirmative action is just too weak. It is trying to correct at the end of a structural process what the structural process will keep reproducing in the absence of meaningful change. What you really need to do is focus on the neighborhood that a child grows up, the wealth of the family in which the child grows, the social networks that the child has access to, the institutional processes that choose whether or not that child is able to go to college as opposed to simply trying to address in a small but meaningful fashion what happens at the end. But I think that affirmative action has some small advantages to recommend it. It puts in positions of responsibility and power people of color who might be able to then work to dismantle these feedback loops.
6: Paradise
0: is
1: exactly like
0: where you are right now.
22: would rather correct you than correct the problem. A lot of hiding behind buzzwords. No one heard of systemic racism before 18 months ago. Now systemic racism's a big deal, except for this time next week. We're not going to hear it. It'll be... With the eight-track players, with the school-to-prison pipeline, it'll just be in that hopper of stuff we no longer need anymore. Once you learn it, it's no good for us. We have to move on. We We have have to create our own. own We have to create and we have to correct. Correct and create. That's what we do. Mm. We are educated. You are not. And that's it. I don't know how much of it is about a love of our children, the future, versus the love of making you dumb which then makes them smart.
0: Black people can't be racist. Black people can be prejudiced. They can be biased, but they can't be racist. And why is that?
6: Tell me. Here's Logan Browning and Justin Simeon.
0: Well, what is racism? Racism is the oppression of a marginalized group in a society that's based on white supremacy.
19: Anyone can hate somebody because of what race they are, and bigotry is really awful. But the thing is, racism, like you said, it's systemic. It's baked into our society. Y'all ain't oppressed, I'm sorry. By the way, it's not as good as it sounds. You don't want to be (laughs)
5: oppressed.
6: Okay, obviously I sympathize with this effort. I agree no one should imagine an equivalency between bigotries that move up or down the power structure. And I agree the power structure and all the systemic challenges to people of color should always be taken into account when thinking about race. But... I think redefining the word racism is not a great way to spread the word. Once you go against a common usage of a word, you're now fighting a semantic battle. Instead of grappling with real problems and solutions, you're mired down in, what does a word mean? It plays into the right's view of the left as nitpicky eggheads. It's hard enough to get people to drop their defenses and self-serving beliefs. Why add a layer of difficulty by telling people a word doesn't mean what they've always thought it to mean? The goal should be to change minds, not the dictionary.
0: That's where being a woman of color who is queer is a great advantage, because I am all of these different things. And so to be intersectional and...
18: Intersexual?
0: Intersectional.
18: Intersectional. It sounds like a couch that you could also turn into a dining room table.
0: Yes. It's including racial dialogue and feminism together.
18: The subject has completely uh, nerved me.
6: there's too much highfalutin language in this fight. Privilege, microaggressions. I'm a reasonably educated liberal who believes these are important concepts, but even I want to change a channel when I hear intersectionality. All these terms come from academia. A problem with academics is they only have to be persuasive to other academics. They don't have to figure out how to sell their ideas to the general public. I'm not playing devil's advocate or wallowing in abstraction for the fun of it. And I'm not trying to protect the feelings of white people. There are real consequences if we fail at persuading people. And if we succeed. In fact, I think it's the jargon approach that invites getting distracted by abstraction. Jargon is not a way to spread the word. Jargon is a way to feel in the know. Jargon excludes. Marketing people know this. You know what reading-level emails are most likely to get a response? Third grade.
9: I don't think that the Democratic Party in the last election was too multicultural or too inclusive. I think we weren't inclusive enough. I don't think we drew our circle of love and concern big enough and that let Trump take advantage.
6: Here's Van Jones.
9: Is it easy to just call them all bigots and racists and and whatever? Yeah, keep doing that. See how that's working. There is a particular skill set that we're all going to need in dealing with difference, being able to listen differently. Being able to assume you may have a blind spot as opposed to assuming that you already know and somebody else is up to no good. We don't need you to be sensitive to make somebody else feel better. We want you to be more skilled so you can make your own life better. I hear still those stupid red state voters who vote against their own self-interest. If they would just listen to NPR like us, everything would be great. (laughs) There's a colonial mentality there. If only everyone were a liberal, it would be great. We just have to do something about these dumb conservatives. I'm not trying to monocrop the political spectrum. We need conservatives, and we need liberals. I want liberals to be in government, and I want the conservatives to be in opposition, but I don't want the conservatives to be in oblivion, because we need the challenge, those questions.
6: Being human is a struggle. I'm about as lucky and privileged as a person can be, but I still at times feel lonely, scared, sad, disrespected, overlooked. We all feel small against the world. Most people don't feel powerful or capable of stepping on anyone else. Most people feel put upon by life. There is a guilt fatigue among white people that says, I was born into this messed up context too. I didn't create it. Life is hard for me too, and I'm tired of hearing about other people's problems and that I'm somehow at fault for them. People I've never met. I'm tired of apologizing and walking on eggshells and worrying about saying something wrong. I'm tired of the anger and not getting the benefit of the doubt. It's not crazy to feel that way. Just remember, black people are way more tired.
2: like 60 minutes and so you see white people pissed off, man. The white man thinks he's losing the country. We're losing everything. We're fucking losing. <laughs> Affirmative action and illegal aliens and we're fucking losing the country. Losing? Shut the fuck up. White people ain't losing shit. If y'all losing, who's winning? It ain't us. <laughs> it ain't us. Have you driven around this motherfucker? Shit, there ain't a white man in this room that would change places with me. None of you. None of you would change places with me. And I'm
6: rich. Let's enjoy a little Dr. Seuss.
4: Now the star-bellied sneetches had bellies with stars. But the plain-bellied sneeches had none upon ours. Because they had stars, all the star-bellied sneetches would brag. We're, We're the, the best, best kind of sneetch on the beaches. beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. They'd have nothing to do with their plain-belly sort. Then one day, it seems, while the plain-bellied Sneetches were moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there, wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger approached in the strangest of cars. By my new patent process of polar potoxys, of the inner subnuclear noose bomb Nogoxys, you'll get a star like the star-bellied Sneech for the mere paltry payment of uh, $3 each. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are faced with a most awkward dilemma. We're the true star bellies. We had them first. We're still the best sneeches, and they're still the worst. You don't know me, my friends. Those upstarts, it's true. Now have stars just like you. But follow me, friends, and you know what I'll do? My wondrous machine which eradicates stars. Then you won't look like sneeches who have them on bars. <laughs> Then, of course, from then on, as you probably guess, things really got into a horrible mess. Off again, on again, in again, out again, through the machines they raced round and about again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane or the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or what one was who. Then, when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chap packed up and he went. And he laughed as he drove his car up the beach. <laughs> they never will learn. No, you can't teach a sneech. But McBean was quite wrong. I am happy to say that the sneeches got really quite smart on that day. That day they decided that sneeches are sneeches, and no kind of sneech is the best on the beaches. That day, all the sneeches forgot about stars, and whether they had one or not
2: upon the
12: I know the kind of world I would like to see
2: and maybe we'll never live to see it
6: James Baldwin
2: the world in which I will not need to invent in effect a heritage and a history that can deal with the one I have and in order to deal with the rest of the world I will not need to feel superior to them but simply be a part of them and it seems to me this may happen I'd love to see a world in which there are no blacks there are no whites where it does not
15: matter because as long as it does matter and it doesn't matter who is wearing a shoe The confusion will be great and the bloodshed will be great.
13: Rich people have always stayed on top by dividing white people from colored people. But white people got more in common with colored people than they do with rich people. We just got to eliminate them. Who, rich people? White people. Black people, too. Brown people, yellow people. Get rid of them all. The voluntary, free-spirited, open-ended program of procreative racial deconstruction. Everybody just got to keep fucking everybody till they're all the same color.
15: flexing our way into utopia yeah Nah. then it'll be something else seems to always want to find distinctions to affirm yourself It's tribalism whatever the reason is look at ireland everybody's white so then the difference is you're a protestant i'm catholic
1: i have spent much of my studies searching for the right question by which i might fully understand the breach between the world and me i have not spent my time studying the problem of race Race itself is just a restatement and retrenchment of the problem. You see this from time to time when some dullard, usually believing himself white, proposes that the way forward is a grand orgy of black and white, ending only when we are all beige and thus the same race. But a great number of black people already are beige, and the history of civilization is littered with dead races, Frankish, Italian, German, Irish, later abandoned because they no longer serve their purpose. The organization of people beneath and beyond the umbrella of rights.
8: The challenge we have is not so much we all intermarry, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's really about how we think about us and them. We like to categorize what's part of how we function in the world. By necessity, I need to be able to recognize this is a car, that's a piece of furniture, you know, we innately are drawn to what's familiar and suspicious of that which is unfamiliar. And human beings are inclined to follow the leader. We're not that different from other pack animals in that way. It's not hard to get people to separate themselves when the leader tells them they should. But you can also have a leader who says, we need to embrace each other's humanity. Jane Elliott, the teacher in what was an all white Iowa classroom, divided her class up into blue-eyed and brown-eyed children, and she put collars on the brown-eyed children and told them that they were not going to have the privileges that the blue-eyed children were going to have, and she told the blue-eyed children that they were smarter than the brown-eyed children, and a class that had been perfectly harmonious was all of a sudden divided, where kids were picking on each other and teasing each other in hateful ways, and then the next day, she came in and told them, oops, sorry, really, it was the other way." <laughs> So leadership really matters.
3: It was absolutely the most I have ever learned in a classroom in my life, and the most my students had ever learned. None of us have ever forgotten it.
6: Well, here she is, Jane Elliott. Fifty years later, she's still doing the exercise, now for college students and adults as well.
3: People say to me, do you think you should experiment with those little children? I create a microcosm of society in my classroom. If what I do for a day is unethical, then what we're doing in this society for 500 years is unethical.
6: But you don't really believe it's unethical what you're doing?
3: No. Number one, I don't experiment with children. I do not do this to learn something from the students. I do this to teach those students something. I provide them with an experience that will make their lives better in the future.
6: I assume you're a lot gentler on the children than when you deal with college students or adults.
3: I am less tough when I do it with children because it lasts for a day. Mm-hmm. But when I do it with adults, it lasts for an hour, maybe two. And in two hours, you have to get the message across in a way that they won't forget.
6: So it's less a matter of age than it is just you have less time, so you have to make this message concentrated.
3: Yeah. Now, most of us don't grow up. We just grow older. Yeah. And inside every one of us is that five-year-old child. In order to make this exercise work, you have to be in your parent ego state and reduce every person in the blue-eyed group to their child's
20: ego state it takes about five minutes do you know the physical aspects of the listening skills do you no what about you a bit, a bit? yes well tell me what the bit is that you know uh, you stand up straight you look at the person who's speaking and you pay attention to what they're saying what if you're sitting down i, I am sitting yeah. down yeah. then you can't listen right you can listen by sitting down. Oh, you just said you stand up straight? I said you sit up straight. Did she say you sit up straight or did she say you (laughs) stand up straight? Is this a universal problem with blue-eyed people? You have a paper and pencil with you? Over in my bag. Why did you put your paper and pencil over there? Because I did not know when I was going to be needing it. Did you ever go to a learning experience before? Yes. Did you ever take notes? Yes. What did you use? I used a paper and pencil. And did you keep it with you so that you could take notes? Yes. Yes. Why didn't you do that this time? Because I was not planning on taking notes. Do you no. think you can remember everything that's going to be said in here? Not word for word. Not no. word for word? So what should you have done? I... Probably, think, she's going to say, I probably should have done it. right. What should you have done? I should have brought my paper and pencil over here and kept it with me that's the entire right. time. That's right. You're acting angry. I am angry. What are you angry about? I'm angry that you're yelling at me. Do you hear me yelling? That's this is yelling! Have I done that yet? Okay, you're using a stern voice. Are you defining me? No, I am not. Do you feel like I'm yelling at you? Yes. Yes, why? Because you're using a stern voice. Honey, it isn't my fault you're stupid. Would you like me to go get my paper and pencil? I wouldn't like you in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Okay, then that's fine. Let's repeat after me. One hen. One hen. Not hand. Hen. Lay eggs. One hen. One hen. One hen, two ducks. One hen, two ducks. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four limerick oysters. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four hemorrhic oysters. Limerick oysters? Limerick oysters. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four limerick oysters, five cork toolkit说processer. You hen- can remember everything, honey. No, this I- isn't hard for you. Go for it. One hen, two ducks, three squawking d- geese, four limerick oysters, five... I forget the other one. Do you wish you had a paper and pencil? No. Do you think you're going to need one if I keep testing you on that? Yes. Then are you going to wish you had a paper and pencil? Yes. Yes. So in the future, what are you going to do when you go to a learning situation? Turn learn the paper. And, pencil. and keep it with? Me. You. Did you learn anything? Yes. Do you appreciate what you just learned? Yes. Did you like the way it was taught? No. No. Any of the rest of you ever taught in that fashion? Yeah.
5: yeah.
20: Yes. And did you have to express appreciation for it? Yeah. What are you crying about? My feelings hurt. How are your feelings hurt? Just hurt. Some of you are thinking, oh, this is too harsh for this young woman. I'm sorry. We live in a society in which people are allowed to treat those who are different in an ugly way because of their differentness. I cannot shed tears for a young white female in this exercise who knows that this is an exercise, who knows that it's temporary, who knows that she's getting college credit for being here. I'm sorry. I have to save my sympathy and my empathy for those who go through something much worse than this every day of their lives.
6: You have to be this horrible, tough person when you do these exercises. Are you channeling your anger at the injustices in the world to take on that character? No,
3: I'm not channeling my anger. When I do that exercise, all I'm doing is acting white. I am doing overtly, but the vast majority of white women in this country are on a daily basis, and who denies that they're doing it? yeah My anger won't lead them out of ignorance, but causing them to have the anger that people of color feel every day and have to smother and have to control, oh my god, yeah, I didn't know how I looked to people of color until I did that blue eyed brown eyed exercise the first day, and those brown eyed kids treated me
6: because you have blue eyes.
3: I have blue eyes, and brown-eyed people are on the top. Right. And immediately, when I told them brown-eyed people are smarter than blue-eyed people, they're cleaner, they're blah, 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 little brown-eyed Debbie sitting in the front row said, how come you're the teacher here if you've got them blue eyes? <laughs> and that went on all day. I pulled down the map, and the ring slipped off my thumb, and the map went round, and round, and round, and I said, well, I've done it again. And little brown-eyed Debbie said, well, I expect you've got blue eyes, haven't you? <laughs> And I had never forgotten how I felt about that child in that instant. I had never been on the receiving end of racism before. And I had never been treated with disrespect by any of my students.
6: Do black people ever say to you, who are you, white lady, to tell us how things are?
3: Sure they do. And I say, you've forgotten more since breakfast about racism than I'll ever learn. However, I know about white people. I know what white people are doing and saying and thinking. And that's what I have to talk about. I'm not here to teach people of color. Mm -hmm. I'm here to teach white people. The first human beings that evolved on this earth were black, and every one of these white people has a black ancestor back there. Oh, no! 280,000 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) The day before yesterday, I said, well, every person in this room who had a black ancestor 280,000 years ago, please stand. All the blacks stand. And a few whites stand. And a few Hispanics stand. And the rest of them just look like... What's she doing to us now? And those black people just grin because they've heard the truth, but white people have a hard time.
6: (laughs) You said black people don't need our love.
3: No, they don't need our love. I don't believe in the golden rule. I believe in the platinum rule. What's that? Do unto others as others would have you do unto them. Not do unto others as you, would have others do unto you, because you and I don't want to be treated the same way. Ah. To know how they want to be treated, I have to ask them, I have to listen to their answer, and that means we have to communicate with one another. We do not want to learn the truth, because we're really happy. It's better to think you're superior. Nathan Rutstein says, prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance.
6: Hmm. you got to get over a lot of defenses to do what you do.
3: It's really hard.
6: Yeah. What are some of the defenses that come up?
3: Oh, God, they funny. <laughs> I'll never forget the white woman who said, I don't dislike black people. When I see one, I just think they're before the grace of God go by. <laughs> oh, my
5: God. Yeah,
3: I fell on her. <laughs> or they will say, when I see people, I don't see people as black or brown or red or yellow. I just see people as people. They never put the word white in there. Right. Because it's all right to see white. You don't have to be embarrassed about being white. Right. When you say, has anybody ever said to you, when I see you, I don't see you black? Every one of those people of color raises their hand. That's one of the things that white people do. What they mean is, when I look at you, I don't apply all those negative stereotypes that I have heard about black people to you. And the day before yesterday, this young, gorgeous, tall black woman said people say that to her every day. And I said, and what do you do? She said, I stopped trying to explain it. She yeah. just get tired.
6: What happened in your formative years that made you conscious of the way things are?
3: Well, at that time, there had been no people of color in Riceville, Iowa. So I was quite certain that what I had learned in school, white superiority, was right. Until I got to college, there were black students there who were smarter than I was. And then we lived in Waterloo, Iowa for eight years. My husband ran a food store in the North End, which was the black section. And the finest people we met were black people. The only person that he caught stealing from him was the white federal meat inspector. And he stole a couple pounds of cheese every week. <laughs> I'll never forget the day we were being transferred to Fort Dodge. I put an ad in the paper that this is a house for rent. And the telephone rang. I answered it. And this woman said, do you rent to And I thought immediately, we're going to have to move back here. And what will happen to us then? Huh. And I said, this is an all-white neighborhood. And I had always sworn that I wouldn't go along with racism. And I went along to get along. I'll never forget that as long as I live. But I will not give up my principles where racism is concerned ever again.
6: Did you feel that regret as soon as you hung up the phone? I knew
3: I was wrong, but I couldn't suck it back in. It was out. And she immediately said, I understand.
6: You said things are better than when you were 13, but worse than when you were 50.
3: That's right, they are, because now they've passed a law that says you have to prove racist intent in the person's mind before you can file a lawsuit claiming racism. Another thing that's worse is white people have gotten very clever about concealing what it is they really meant. Mm -hmm. An implied threat, but it's said with a smile. White people have learned how to play the game less obviously, but we're still playing the game.
6: Do you feel like in 100 years the ideal will be where we put just as much importance on skin color as eye color or hair color or anything like that, where it isn't noticed, really?
3: We'll see skin color as being part of the human condition. We'll realize that there are 2,500 different skin colors on the face of the earth, and we don't want to come up with 2,500 different races. Eventually, we'll have the kind of education that uses a decent map of the world, that teaches mm-hmm. the truth about history, Eventually, we will grow up and not be afraid of the truth. That will happen. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime, because I'm probably only going to live 50 or 60 years more. (laughs) But I think it will happen in the lifetimes of my grandchildren by the time they get to be my age. Eventually, we will do what Jesus told us to, to see every person as your brother or sister, because they are. Mm -hmm. We are all members of the same race. Read The Myth of Race by Sussman, and then you realize that you've been dreadfully lied to.
6: I did read it, and then I called up Professor Robert Sussman to talk about it. This was back in May of 2016, and I'm sad to report that he passed away a month later. My condolences go out to his family and all the people he worked with. So I'm doing a show about race, and before Jane Elliott mentioned your book to me, it hadn't occurred to me to even ask, how long has this idea been around?
17: since around the 1400s, but it really developed even more in the 1600s when we started moving around the earth more and dividing colonial people into different races.
6: So given the sweep of history, it's a recent phenomenon.
17: Yeah. And how
6: did it begin? Probably with the Spanish
17: Inquisition. At that time, Christians saw non-Christians as a bad development to their economy, so people had to carry certificates of Christian and non-Christian blood.
6: When did science, or the attempt at science, get involved in this question?
17: 1600s, 1700s, when philosophers started to think about how we developed and categorized human populations. At first, they developed the ideas that people with different colors either were born by God, but then as they moved away from Europe, they degenerated and developed these very odd characteristics. And other people thought that they weren't born by God, but they were actually born pre-Adam, pre-Adamites, and never developed European or Caucasian traits.
6: Biologically, what is race?
17: Well, the way biologists define race does not exist in humans.
6: How do biologists define race?
17: Biologists define race by genetic differences between populations. So let's say a mammalian population is evolving in Africa. Over time, it will move into many different spaces, and then the different populations will stop breeding with one another. And if that lack of breeding continues, these populations will first develop into races and then different species. And that's how we evolve. Humans haven't been around for that long. We've only been around for about 200,000 years. We haven't had the time to actually develop into populations that are different enough genetically to be subspecies. In chimpanzees, there are actually subspecies, but humans don't have that much genetic variation.
6: So there's no specific number of quantifiable differences. It's just at a certain point, there's a decision made that this is a separate species.
17: Well, that's the way it was done in the past, but now there's a scale from zero to one. And if a population has 0.3 genetic variation, they're actually a subspecies. Chimpanzees have 0.4 or 5 genetic differentiation, but humans have less than 0.1.
6: If you take someone from sub-Saharan Africa and someone from the North Pole as far apart as possible, the maximum difference there could be is...
17: Less than 0.2, yeah.
6: Okay.
23: You've seen the streets of this city. The dregs of the world are coming here. Every country emptying their slums into our ports. Italians, Jews, any Semite, really. Gypsies and homosexuals, the dim-witted and defective everywhere we look. But among them, the Negro the one we brought here ourselves, he could be the largest danger of all. Rockefeller, Carnegie, Harriman, they're all putting money towards teaching. Colleges and medical schools are adding eugenics courses in droves.
6: You called Nazism the logical climax of the concept of race.
17: You have the development of what we call eugenics in America, Mm -hmm. a group of people that were trying to use what we thought of as genes at that time to develop a
23: better race.
7: We know we need a more permanent approach. A
23: medical solution. To stop the growth of what has already passed through our doors.
17: (laughs) How? They breed like animals.
22: And how do you stop an animal from breeding?
17: So by the end of the 1920s, they were able to get a lot of states to have sterilization laws. So people who were feeble-minded, who were blind, who had what we thought were genetic differences, could not breed. And this was carried on by Hitler to genetic populations in Germany and in Europe. When Hitler took over this eugenics movement, thought that was really great. There's still eugenicists around today. They're in a minority now. Mm -hmm. The Pioneer Fund, which was developed in 1937 by one of the eugenicists, is still going today.
6: I looked it up. Yeah, they have a website. Oh, yeah. still around.
17: And then there's the American Renaissance Society, which has taken off from the Pioneer Fund, which is even more bound in eugenics.
6: Yeah, and I guess with the rise of Trump, I don't know if it's exactly eugenics, but it definitely seems similar.
17: It's the same underlying idea.
6: This idea of immigration polluting us. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, reading your book, I had the sad thought that eugenics and these ideas are just heads of the racism hydra, and cutting them off is not the same as killing racism. No, it's really true. It's just moved over to a cultural hatred.
17: That's right. There's still that racism that's very virulent.
6: Tell me a little bit about Franz Boas.
17: Around the 1900s, most scientists were caught up in eugenics and thought that we could maneuver human populations to breed better and become better. But Boas started doing ethnographic work, which looked at immigrants from Europe and showed that they could change their brain size over time.
6: Now, when you say people could change their brain size, you mean generationally?
17: Yes. Within the first or second generation, the children have different brain sizes. And this was one of the traits that people thought was fixed by ancestry and genetics.
6: And Boz showed that it was environmental.
17: The diet of the children is different in different places.
6: It's just a matter of nutrition. That's right. So he just gathered up immigrants and would measure?
17: Yeah, and he was actually surprised when he found these head measurements change over time. And so he distributed the book personally because he wanted people to Mm -hmm. know. 1916... Madison Grant wrote The Passing of the Great Race, and it really defined eugenics at that time. And from that time on, Grant and Boaz were at odds throughout their lives.
6: It's a great story. Somebody should make a movie out of it.
17: Throughout Boaz's lifetime, the eugenicists would go after him. They tried to get him fired from Columbia University. They got him thrown off the American Anthropological Association board.
6: I thought it was interesting how Grant tried to dismiss him, saying that his work was self-serving because he's Jewish never realizing that it was self-serving on Grant's side, certainly also, because he was a white man.
17: That's right. Some of the students were Jewish also, so they said, this is a Jewish guy just trying to get in the white race. By the 1920s, the eugenicists were very popular, most popular scientists in the world. And by the 1930s, the Eugenics society was almost dead. Yeah. Just before Hitler took over, the eugenic society was actually in the United States decreasing.
6: How is eugenics disproven?
17: Well, geneticists started to see that things like feeble-mindedness and epilepsy could be treated, and they weren't actually part of the whole genetic background of the individual.
6: Uh, I don't want to be in the position of defending eugenics, but isn't epilepsy, isn't there a genetic component for things like that?
17: There is a genetic component, but it's not easily inherited, and it's not delivered by any racial group. Right. And it's a treatable individual trait, so you can separate it from the individual, and you can separate it from the race, and you can even separate it from the family. The things that we call biological differences, even in medicine, are absolutely wrong. Sickle cell anemia, high blood pressure in black males, all of those are developed by environmental factors. That
5: oh, really?
6: Oh, yes. I didn't know that. I believe that sickle cell anemia was to some degree a black thing. No, it's
17: not a black thing. It's related to where you grow up, which is related to how much malaria is in that area. So uh-huh. people in the Middle East also have high levels of sickle cell, just as uh-huh. many Africans do. And high blood pressure? Yeah. There's no racial incidence of this in Africa. It's a stress thing in America for American blacks.
6: By every metric, infant mortality, life expectancy, wealth, education, incarceration, there is a huge gap between black and white. Some, like me, think that these numbers point to past and ongoing racism. Others will take the same numbers as evidence of a broken culture.
22: If you have a child, black or white, Jew or Hispanic, and his parents stay together and raise him, he's statistically much more apt to go on to college and be successful and pull himself up out of wherever Stay he or she is pulling him or herself up out of. If the parent leaves, like the dad leaves, then statistically it's much more difficult. Hey, we got to have an honest dialogue about race. Yeah, here's the honest dialogue. We need more black dads. Oh, uh, that's racist. All right, moving on to the next conversation. then. That ironically is the only honest conversation that no one wants to have.
6: Liberals go to this idea too. Many black people go to this idea.
16: Along with collective responsibilities, we have individual responsibilities. There are some things, as black men, we can only do for ourselves. Just as Morehouse has taught you to expect more of yourselves, inspire those who look up to you to expect more of themselves. We know that too many young men in our community continue to make bad choices. Growing up, I made quite a few myself. Sometimes I wrote off my own failings as just another example of the world trying to keep a black man down. I had a tendency sometimes to make excuses for me not doing the right thing. But one of the things that all of you have learned over the last four years is there's no longer any room for excuses.
6: Conservatives love it. But jumping to culture as an explanation makes us miss a lot of other factors. Like you might hear that black wealth is 5% of white wealth. If you say it comes down to culture and end the inquiry there, you're never going to find out things like this.
24: The whole concept of Reconstruction was the freed slaves who had been working the land for hundreds of years would get some share in the land. But the problem for the South is they couldn't give the slaves the land because they needed them to grow cotton. And once they were able to own land, most people who own land subsistent crops to feed themselves and their families And the Southern white supremacy could not abide by that. They needed those cotton profits, which could only be accrued through the sharecropping arrangement. So the compromise was, as James Baldwin says, the North and the South freeing the slaves and then delivering them back up to their masters. So once Reconstruction essentially fails at Johnson's veto, and all of the land reparations ideas and education, all of the reforms that were put on the table, are just thrown away. The one thing that remains is the Freedman Savings Bank. This is the start of the black banking sector, and it was a compromise and it was a weak one. Free slaves were supposed to just get land, land obviously that they more than earned, had worked for so long, instead the Republican and the Democrat compromise gave them this savings account. And so the idea was, okay, we won't give you land, but you can save your money and buy the land yourself. But the problem was that the bank wasn't actually a commercial bank. There was no loans. It was just a big savings piggy bank. So they took all the money of the freed slaves, and then it was essentially looted by its white management. Jay Cook and Henry Cook, who were infamous speculators. Think of your investment bankers, but worse. They were gamblers, and they took the money, and they speculated away on railroad bonds, and they lost it. So the one thing that survives Reconstruction is the savings bank, and it was a disaster for the free slaves.
6: And that's just a tiny sample from Mayor Sabaradaran's books on the racial wealth gap, books full of facts beyond culture that explain it. Talking culture is appealing for white people. It's a simple explanation. It lets us off the hook. It plays to positive values, personal responsibility, discipline, struggle, perseverance. And it plays to our impatience to live in a world where these values pay off for everyone, a world that is fair. And it plays to our egos. There's an idea that has an appeal for people on top. There's a reason we're on top. There's something better about us. Wouldn't someone else be on top otherwise? Well, take that idea to Germany in 1943. Take that idea to Christianity during the Crusades. Take it to Stalin. Take it to fundamentalism in Iran today, take it to jocks in high school, take it to the White House, take it anywhere and quit flattering yourself. The ones on top are not always the best. Lee Ross talked about this in the enemies episode.
21: That's a fundamental attribution error. When it comes to other people, we make trade attributions. When it comes to ourselves, we're much more inclined to make situational attributions.
6: If white children are born in households with 20 times the wealth of black households, is it fair to watch the progress of each child to judge the relative merits of their cultures? Black unemployment has been steadily twice white unemployment for the last 50 years. You can decide that's evidence of a cultural problem. That would fit stereotypes we've all heard. But a study was done where the same resumes were sent out with black or white sounding names, and the ones with white names got twice as many callbacks. Whites with a criminal record Got more callbacks than blacks without. I'm not saying culture doesn't matter. I'm saying for white people to focus on culture in the wake and continued presence of all these other things is gross. It's monumentally self serving. Let's fix these systemic problems, then wait 50 years and then see how much to wake culture. Until we control for all the other factors, crying culture is not just unfair, it's bad science.
22: Black males, 16 to 23, about 4% of the population does about 50% of the violent crime or the murders. Until we talk about how to correct that, then every single cop, black or white, who walks up to a car with a black male in it that is in that age category is going to be freaked out. And he's going to have his hand on his gun. That's what's going to happen. Now, we can train them a little bit but adrenaline is a hard thing to train out of. So it's 4% versus 50%. We're going to have to change those numbers. And if we can change those numbers, then we can slow this down. Comes a lot easier. Yeah, there still be racist cops out there, but this number needs
6: to change. Okay, I looked this up and his numbers are basically correct. So let's talk about crime. First off, Corolla's explanation might seem intuitive to you. But in fact, police shootings do not correspond to the rate of violent crime in a city. For example, Detroit has a lot of violent crime, but few police killings. Oklahoma City has a much lower crime rate, but more police killings. Now, I have to come clean here. Uh, Recently, I drove by a bus stop, and I saw a black guy standing there squinting into the sun. Young guy, maybe 20, with a do-rag. And I looked at what was in me at that moment— And realize there's a sense in which all my talk about we're all the same and it's just skin tone is bullshit. I mean, I do believe that. And I do want to live in a world that believes that. But at the same time, I looked at that guy with a deep down feeling that he was other. I want people to think well of me, but I have to be open about my own prejudice. The fear that rises in me sometimes when I walk or even drive through certain areas of town. And that I'm hardly ever in those areas. So why are black people seen as scary to some of us? There's the fear of what's different. And there's a fear that comes from guilt, from the knowledge of what's been done to black people and maybe a fear of retribution. We know they have a right to their anger and that if it was proportionate to the wrongs done to them, it would turn the planet to a cinder. And what's been done, of course, has affected black people too. To be under constant threat has an impact. It means you can't show weakness.
1: All my young life, the only people I knew were black, and all of them were powerfully, adamantly, dangerously afraid. I had not always recognized it as such. The fear was there in the extravagant boys of my neighborhood, in their large rings and medallions, their big puffy coats and full-length fur-collared leathers, which was their armor against their world. I think back on those boys now and all I see is fear, and all I see is them girding themselves against the ghosts of the bad old days when the Mississippi mob gathered round their grandfathers so that the branches of the black body might be torched, then cut away. The fear lived on in their practiced bop, in the music that pumped from boom boxes full of grand boasts and bluster. The boys who stood out on Garrison and Liberty loved this music because it told them against all evidence and odds that they were masters of their own lives, their own streets, and their own
6: bodies. But there are other, more insidious reasons white people are afraid.
1: The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of
6: course we did. That's not a quote from Malcolm X. It was read by Doggy Diamonds, but the quote belongs to Nixon domestic policy chief... John Ehrlichman. Now here's Cory Booker.
16: One of the greatest tragedies going on in our country right now, the biggest disenfranchisement we've seen since we were fighting for voting rights is the disenfranchisement of people who've been convicted of nonviolent drug offenses. The drug war is not a war on drugs. It's a war on people, particularly poor people, particularly minorities, we are devastating these communities. And so now you have swing states like Virginia and Florida, where one out of every five African-Americans has lost their right to vote. And so we have this outrageous reality in this country right now where our prison population since 1980 has grown 500%, federal prison population 800%, more people in jail today for nonviolent drug offenses and all the people in jail for 1975 being locked up for doing things the last two presidents said they're doing. And now they're in a second-class citizenship where they can't get jobs, they can't vote. They can't get Pell Grants. They can't get food stamps. They can't get public housing. They've entered this caste system, and it's an affront to our democracy. And by the way, no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs, no difference for dealing drugs, except for some studies show that young white men have a higher rate of dealing drugs. But an African-American will get arrested for drug crimes about four times more than one. I I, used to deal drugs, did you? (laughs) I did not deal (laughs) drugs. (laughs) Right there. there. Between
6: 1980 and 2000, the U.S. drug arrest rate went up 31% for whites that sound like a lot because for blacks it went up 448% and again drug use about the same crack despite what you might have heard is chemically not significantly more dangerous than powder cocaine but until the passage of the fair sentencing act in 2010 there was a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity 10 grams of crack would get 10 years but it took 1000 grams of powder to get the same sentence controlling for the things you'd want controlled, black people are more likely to get pulled over, stopped and frisked, arrested, jailed awaiting trial, plea deals with jail time, struck from juries, convicted and with longer sentences, and killed. So if there is unjust and disproportionate incarceration of black men, isn't it insane for white people to ask, where are the black fathers?
2: Mostly I like being a mother, Alyssa. She's six years old. That's my baby, my only child. She likes to read me books, sit down and talk with me about her school.
20: <laughs> but there's a lot of sand in the heart.
2: Recently she just learned about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. She said, but those are in the old days, right mommy? And I had to explain to her that it's not really over. And the same thing Martin Luther King was, he fought for our rights. This is the same thing I'm doing in honor of Hop Hop. My dad's name is Eric Gardner. I was able to see my dad die on national TV. They don't know what they took from us.
6: the first time I heard that track when I was a kid. I thought it was harsh. I didn't know then about mass incarceration of black people. Didn't know that police, even in northern cities like Boston, were once slave catchers. I didn't know about Bull Connor and his dogs, or the Algiers Motel, or Fred Hampton, shot in his sleep, or all the harassment focused on black people. It was before the time of smartphones when cops could just abuse or kill a person, write a false report, and likely never be held to account. If you don't know it firsthand, try to imagine living with that, abused by those who are supposed to be your protectors, and everyone's default assumption is they're telling the truth and you're lying. Imagine your frustration. Imagine surviving to a time when everyone has a camera in their pocket and abusive cops are frequently caught. And they're still, frequently, not held to account. Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Abner Luema, and all the names we've forgotten or never knew. Cops say it's unfair to judge all of them by the actions of a few bad apples. Great. Now apply that logic to black people, because they're also being judged by the worst of them.
1: At this moment... The phrase police reform has come into vogue. You may have heard the talk of diversity, sensitivity training, and body cameras. These are all fine and applicable, but they understate the task and allow the citizens of this country to pretend that there is real distance between their own attitudes and those of the ones appointed to protect them.
6: Once I was riding in a lift with a driver of color and he got pulled over by the police. I surreptitiously turned on my phone's video camera just in case something happened. The cop said he had rolled through a stop sign. He took his license and registration. A few minutes went by, and the cop came back and let him off with a warning. And that was it. I thought about the video I got, almost disappointed, nothing to share. And it made me feel sympathy for the cops for a second. They have this tough job, and when they do it right, no one talks about it. They only get attention when they screw up. But this is the danger of people like me weighing in on these issues, people who are insulated, and with a deep longing to stay that way? Because there's another kind of story that doesn't make the news, that happens with great regularity. Here's one from a New England artist and professor named Steve Locke.
23: I walked down Center Street and was about to cross over to the burrito place, and the officer got out of the car. Hey, my man, he said. He unsnapped the holster of his gun. I took my hands out of my pockets. Yes, I said. Where are you coming from? Home. Where's home? Dedham. How'd you get here? I drove. He was next to me now. Two other police cars pulled up. I was standing in front of the bank across the street from the burrito place. I was going to get lunch before I taught my one thirty class. There were cops all around me. I looked at the officer who addressed me. He was white... Stocky, bearded. You weren't over there, were you? He pointed toward Hyde Square. No, I came from Dedham. What's your address? I told him. We had someone matching your description just try to break into a woman's house. A second police officer stood next to me, white, tall. Two police cruisers passed and would continue to circle the block for the 35 minutes I was standing across the street from the burrito place. You fit the description, the officer said. Blackmail, knit hat, puffy coat. Do you have any identification? May I reach into my pocket and get my wallet? Yeah. I handed him my license. He walked over to a police car. I wore a Ralph Lauren quilted blazer. No coat. Barbara Sullivan made a knit cap for me. She knitted it in pinks and browns and blues and oranges and lime green. No one has a hat like this. I clasped my hands in front of me to stop them from shaking. For the record, I said to the second cop, I'm not a criminal. I'm a college professor. I was wearing my faculty ID around my neck, clearly visible with my photo. You fit the description, so we have to check it out. The first cop returned and handed me my license. We have the victim, and we need her to look at you to see if you are the person. It was at this moment that I knew that I was probably going to die. I'm not being dramatic when I say this. I was not going to get into a police car. I was not going to let them take me anywhere, because if they did, the chance I was going to be accused of something I did not do rose exponentially. I knew this in my heart. I was not going anywhere with these cops, and I was not going to let some white woman decide whether I was a criminal. This meant that I was going to resist arrest. This meant that I was not going to let the police put their hands on me. Something weird happens when you are on the street being detained by the police. People look at you like you are a criminal. The police are detaining you, so clearly you must have done something. No one made eye contact with me. I was hoping that someone I knew would walk down the street or get off the 39 bus or come out of J.P. Licks and say to these cops, that's Steve Locke, what the fuck are you detaining him for? The cops decided that they would bring the victim to come view me on the street. They asked me to wait. I said nothing. I stood still. Thanks for cooperating, the second cop said. This is probably nothing, but it's our job and you do fit the description. 5'11", black male, 160 pounds, but you're a little more than that. Thanks. An older white woman walked up to the second cop. You guys sure are busy today. I noticed a black woman further down the block. She was small and watching what was going on. I focused on her red coat. I slowed my breathing. I thought, don't leave, sister. Please don't leave. The first cop said, where do you teach? Massachusetts College of Art and Design. I tugged at the lanyard that had my ID. How long you been teaching there? Thirteen years. We stood in silence for about ten more minutes. An unmarked police car pulled up. The driver got out. I'm Detective Cardoza. I appreciate your cooperation. I said nothing. How did you get here? I drove. Where's your car? It's in the lot behind Bukhara. I pointed up Center Street. Okay, the detective said. We're going to let you go. Do you have a car key you can show me? Yes, I said. I'm going to reach into my pocket and pull out my car key. Okay. Okay. I showed him the key to my car the cops thanked me for my cooperation I nodded and turned to go sorry for screwing up your lunch break the second cop said I walked back toward my car away from the burrito place I saw the woman in red thank you I said to her thank you for staying are you okay she said her small beautiful face was lined with concern not really I'm really shook up and I have to get to work I knew something was wrong. I was watching the whole thing. The way they are treating us now, you have to watch them. I'm so grateful you were there. May I give you a hug? Yes, she said. She held me as I shook. Are you sure you're okay? No, I'm not. I'm going to have a good cry in my car. I have to go teach. My colleague was in our shared office and she was able to calm me down. I had about 45 minutes until my class began. I forgot the lesson I had planned. I couldn't think about how to do my job. I thought about the fact they didn't believe I wasn't a criminal. They had to find out. My word was not enough for them. My ID was not enough for them. My handmade one-of-a-kind knit hat was an object of suspicion. My Ralph Lauren blazer was only a puffy coat. That white woman could just walk up to a cop and talk about me like I was an object for regard. I wanted to go back and spit in their faces. The cops were probably deeply satisfied with how they handled the interaction, and how they didn't escalate the situation, how they were respectful and polite. I imagine sitting in the back of a police car while a white woman decides if I am a criminal. If I look guilty being detained by the cops, imagine how vile I become sitting in a cruiser. I knew I could not let that happen to me. I knew if that were to happen, I would be dead. Nothing I am, nothing I do, nothing I have means anything, because I fit the description. I had to confess to my students that I was a bit out of it today, and I asked them to bear with me. I had to teach. After class, I was supposed to go to the openings for First Friday. I went home.
6: This piece was read by Demorge Brown, who shared with me a few of his own stories of police harassment. Read the unabridged version at stevelock.com. That's L-O-C-K-E. He's an artist, and I think that's how he would like to be seen. If you want to support him in that, you'll find a link there to his GoFundMe page. There's racism in me. For all my saying of the right things, there is some primal and cultural sludge in here. Take Haiti. I know almost nothing about Haiti. I know it's a poor country somewhere in the Caribbean. I know a lot of people there had AIDS. I didn't know the history. Without ever consciously deciding it, I just had a general sense that the Haitian people were primitive and poor and a vague feeling that it was nobody's fault, just something inherent to their nature. Conan O'Brien did
7: a show in Haiti. He gave a little primer on their history. Before the Europeans came, Haiti was inhabited by the indigenous Taino people. Then the Spanish arrived, conquered the Tainos, plundered their gold, and brought in thousands of African slaves. Then the French did the same thing when they took over. Then in 1804, Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines led a slave revolt, defeated the French, and the nation of Haiti was born. But France demanded reparations, and Haiti had to pay them 91 million gold francs. All the while, the poor black majority fought with the small but wealthy mulattoes, dividing Haiti, until in 1915, the U.S. invaded to impose stability, while also removing the gold from the Haitian National Bank. When the U.S. withdrew, Haiti was led by military juntas and mostly corrupt presidents, including Francois Papadoc Duvalier and his son Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, who for the next 30 years siphoned hundreds of millions of dollars out of the country and were followed by a military government, more appointed presidents, military rulers, an elected leader, more military rulers, another election, then a coup d'etat, a UN peacekeeping force, and more contested elections. Then a devastating earthquake which killed hundreds of thousands of Haitians, followed by food shortages, an outbreak of cholera, and devastation by hurricanes. In short, the people of Haiti have been dealt the worst hand in the Western Hemisphere.
6: And I realized I had never taken any of that into account. I wasn't curious about why things were messed up there. I just thought, poor backwards people. And part of why that was so easy for me to think, why curiosity and compassion weren't my first instinct, was because those people don't look like me. I'm not sharing this to wallow in guilt or seek absolution. I'm sharing it to say it's not that hard to go awry. And that this is not a fight between angels and devils. It's a fight for people and societies with varying degrees of blemish to do better. We all need to engage with our own ugliness. We can't just ignore it. And we ought not to pretend we're wholly innocent when we see it in others. A problem with the binary view where any racism makes you a monster is it makes us resistant to admitting any guilt in ourselves, even to ourselves. If we're not good guys, then we must be bad guys. And we can't allow that.
19: You will never bat a thousand when it comes to dealing with race issues.
6: Here's Jay Smooth.
19: We look at racism and prejudice as having tonsils. You either have tonsils or you don't. And so if you've had your prejudice removed, you never need to consider. (laughs) If someone says, I think you may have a little unconscious prejudice, you say, no, my prejudice was removed in 2005. I, I went to see that movie Crash. It's all good but that's not how these things work when you go through your day-to-day lives there are all of these mass media and social stimuli as well as processes that we all have inside our brains that we're not aware of that cause us to build up little pockets of prejudice every day just like plaque develops on our teeth (laughs) so we need to move away from the tonsils paradigm of race discourse towards the dental hygiene paradigm We don't assume that I'm a clean person, therefore I don't need to brush my teeth. And when someone suggests to us that we've got something stuck in our teeth, we don't say, what what do you mean? I'm a clean person, why would (laughs) you? We need to move away from the premise that being a good person is a fixed immutable characteristic and towards seeing being good as a practice that we carry out by engaging with our imperfections. We are not good despite our imperfections. The connection we maintain with our personal and common imperfections is what allows us to be good to each other and to ourselves. So.
5: <laughs> so,
19: I hope that we can shift away from taking it as an indictment and move towards taking it as a gesture of respect and an act of kindness when someone tells us that we've got something racist stuck in our teeth.
4: <laughs> it doesn't matter where you say you've been. No. It doesn't matter what you've done Oh, no, no Cause the same color blood Is running through my veins Is the color that sustains another one I know You might have had a hard time, yeah And maybe you thought of giving in But don't never give in Cause no matter where you stand It's not too much to leave my head Yeah, my neighbor Yeah, my brother yes. Yeah, my
6: That's the show. Please check out the website, myaclonicjerk.com There'll be links to everyone you've heard and to resources for further study. I know this was a long one, but believe me, there is so much I didn't have time to get to. You can write to me at mailbox at or on the Facebook page. Big thanks to everyone who gave their time. Check out Dwayne Kennedy's album on iTunes. Thanks to Brian Lotz and Gurley Salguero for production assistance. Thanks for behind-the-scenes help to Michelle Tyreen Johnson, Sean Harris, Jovan Gamble, Bob Marcy Brower, and all the nice, forgiving people I'm surely forgetting. Congrats to the Song Suggestion winner, Chris Bush, for Fuck the Police. And thank you for listening. I feel confident you won't have to wait as long for the next episode. Which will be on breakups. Happy New Year, everybody. And greetings to the Beat family in Birmingham England. You're my friend. Yes
1: you let me tell you what I'm trying to do Ralph Wiley responded to Bellow's quip. Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zulus, wrote Wiley. Unless you find a profit in fencing off universal properties of mankind into exclusive tribal ownership,